I want everyone who is dealing with the problems we've been facing, whether you haven't been able to get to where you need to go, or you're one of our heroic employees caught up in a massive effort to stabilize the airline, uh, to know is that we're doing everything we can to return to a normal operation. And please also hear that I'm truly sorry. Well, good morning, everyone. It is Wednesday, December the 28th, and that was an apology from the CEO of Southwest Airlines after the chaos that continues for the airline and so many passengers. It is little solace for thousands of stranded passengers across the country and thousands more who are about to find out their flight today has been canceled. Also, Title 42 still being enforced at the southern border after a new Supreme Court decision that we got overnight. It has left thousands of migrants and advocates in Mexico and the United States in a state of flux and confusion. We are also getting a new batch of January 6th committee transcripts this morning. One of their key witnesses, Cassidy Hutchinson, describing discussions about QAnon being taken seriously within the walls of the White House. Also, news about the burning of documents. A lot ahead on that. We start this morning with that full-scale meltdown that is still underway at Southwest Airlines. There is no relief as of this morning as the company is now confirming that more than 60% of today's flights are already canceled and the chaos is likely to continue into 2023. Thousands upon thousands of passengers left stranded and struggling to figure out how they're going to get where they were going. The chief executive of the company is apologizing as federal scrutiny is growing. Senator Maria Cantwell, who is the chair of the Senate Commerce Committee, says they're going to investigate the cause of this meltdown as Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg is also vowing to hold Southwest accountable. I understand you just spoke directly with the CEO of Southwest Airlines. Did you get any explanation at all for this horrendous meltdown of epic proportions? Well, meltdown is the right word. This is an unacceptable situation. You look at the number of passengers who are stranded. Uh, you look at how hard it is even to get somebody on the phone to address it. Uh, from what I can tell, Southwest is unable to locate even where their own crews are, let alone their own passengers, let alone baggage. Nick Valencia is live for CNN this morning at Atlanta's Hartsfield-Jackson Airport. Nick, of course, hearing that there are more cancellations today is not what passengers were hoping to be flying out of that airport and others were hoping to hear. Yeah, good morning, Kayleen. The cascade of flight cancellations continues for at least one more day with more bad news for Southwest Airlines. As you mentioned, more than 60 percent of its flights on Wednesday have been canceled and those looking to rebook have really no options in the immediate future. If there is one bright spot here today in Atlanta, it's the line at Southwest is noticeably shorter than it was yesterday. Those that we have spoken to in line say that their flight is scheduled on time to take off, but they are yet breathing a sigh of relief. I spoke earlier to the Fitzpatrick family. They say they're scheduled on time to go take off to Austin, Texas later today, but they won't be breathing that sigh of relief until they're on that flight and it takes off. So when we were coming here from Austin, they were saying that uh, I guess a lot of flights, they had to change the plane and downsize. I'm not sure what's for, but basically they um, they said about 30 people wouldn't make the flight. Oh, wow. So How were you so lucky to be able to get on the flight? We checked in early, honestly. that was They said the people that checked in early will get on guaranteed. We've been checking the news like every day, and then every hour I'm on my app, just like, please be on time, please be on time. And then w one thing that's concerning me is the gate keeps changing. So I don't want to be at a gate and then all of a sudden look at my app, and it's all the way on the other side. So I'm just hoping God gives us grace to find a gate and finalize this. <laughs> 
It would appear at least so far this morning those who have had their flights canceled are staying away for the most part from the airport. But it is expected to be another busy day at the nation's airports with perhaps another long day for those flying southwest. Caitlin. Yeah, I imagine a lot of prayers happening at that airport. Nick Valencia, thank you for that report. <laughs> yeah. A lot of prayers indeed. CNN Business Correspondent Rahel Solomon joins us now. Rahel, good morning to you. Hey, good morning. Uh, Southwest, the stock, right? Not reacting well, obviously, to this. Yeah, absolutely not reacting well. So I think there are a few ways to think about the financial impact of this ordeal, of this mess, right? Meltdown. So first, you can see the immediate impact to the stock. So you can see how shares closed yesterday, closing down about 6%, pretty significant, closing at about 34 bucks a share. So that's the more immediate impact, right? And just to put this sort of all in perspective, taking a look at Southwest, the last time we heard from the airline, the third quarter earnings, company reported $277 million in profits on $6.2 billion revenue. To put this in context, you can see how this compares to 2021 and 2019. The industry as a whole also sitting on some pretty healthy profits, right? Uh, this is the 24 U.S. passenger airlines, $2.4 billion for third quarter 2022, just about the same in the second quarter. If you're wondering what happened here, that was mostly COVID. exactly yeah. COVID, Omicron. So as of late, though, the last six months or so, the airlines have been doing pretty well. And that brings me to the longer yeah. term impact of this financially, which will likely be pretty significant. I just want to get really quickly to a quote from Scott Keyes uh, from Scott's uh, Cheap Flights. This is what he told me last night. I think there's going to be a non-trivial financial cost to the airline for this meltdown. You have to think about both the compensation that they're almost certainly going to have to be paying out to travelers, but also the crew, the overtime. So this is going to be an expensive, costly I issue. I was going to say the question here and why the stock is down pretty significantly is because this isn't an overnight fix. No, it's not. And this I think is like a year plus to fix. Yeah, I mean, and it's also going to be costly investments, right? So it's the money yeah. that the airline has to give back to uh, passengers. By the way, this is like their Super Bowl, the, the holiday period. Yeah. This is when they make so much money. So it's the money they have to give back. It's the money they have to pay to all of the people working the phones and around the clock. Yeah. Oh, and by the way, there's a chance potentially of a fine. You have, right, the Buttigieg was talking about. You have some great advice, though, Four passengers stuck right now. Maybe you're watching us at the airport. We hope you're not stuck. If you are, what, what else yes. can they do? Okay, so I asked around, and there are a few things, if you were still at an airport and we are thinking about you, a few things to think about. So uh, this tip coming from Kathleen Bangs of Flight Aware. Rebook, but get creative, i.e. you need to pull out a map, ask the counter, ask the person on the phone, okay, can you get me close-ish? So for all Ish. of my friends who watched Home Alone over the holiday weekend, think of Kevin's mom when she's trying to get back to Chicago from it's Paris. It's my son's favorite movie. Me too. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so that's essentially what we're talking about here. But so if you're also, trying to get to New York, go to Philly or something. Exactly, or okay. go to D.C., maybe okay. take an Amtrak, which okay. brings me to some of these points. This is why you want to save your receipts, because yeah. especially in a situation like this, there's a chance that you might get reimbursed for those additional expenses. Southwest says reasonable. Also, check your credit card provider and insist on a cash refund. Cash. None of those vouchers. No, not here. Thank you, Rahel. <laughs> yeah. Appreciate it very much. Caitlin. Also this morning, the Supreme Court says that pandemic-era border restriction known as Title 42 is going to stay in place for now. It's a decision that delays the potential for a huge increase in unlawful crossings that officials have been bracing for. In this brief unsigned order, the justices of the Supreme Court halted a trial judge's ruling that would have lifted the measure and in effect granted a GOP request to prevent the winding down of Title 42. 
Thousands of migrants who are desperately waiting at the border are now facing months of more uncertainty. They were hoping for the chance to enter the United States legally. CNN's Rosa Flores is live in El Paso, Texas. Priscilla Alvarez is in Washington. Priscilla, I want to start with you because we got this 5-4 decision from the Supreme Court. It was very brief, but basically it means this is going to stay in place until they hear the decision uh, in the coming months in 2023. That's right. They're essentially saying these restrictions are going to remain in effect while legal challenges play out, a process that takes months. Now, this is an order that is ultimately a victory for Republican-led states who had intervened in the case and tried to block the termination of this authority. Now, some justices said that they would deny the application, including conservative Justice Neil Gorsuch, who in a dissent Siding with the liberals said, quote, the current border crisis is not a covid crisis and courts should not be in the business of perpetuating administrative edicts designed for one emergency only because elected officials have failed to address a different emergency. This is something that we have heard from immigrant advocates. But all the same, it means that this order will keep Title 42 in place for months to come. Caitlin. And, and Rosa, just to bring you in here, we were so struck by your reporting on the ground yesterday morning, um, seeing all of those migrants bundled up with their children in 36 degree weather. The real impact is what this means for them. What is the court doing this mean for them? because there's various groups of migrants here. There's migrants who turn themselves into authority and have a packet of uh, documentation that allows them to uh, travel in the United States. And then there's the group of migrants who got desperate because Title 42 hasn't been lifted yet, and they entered the country illegally. Now, the reason why their impact is different is because the individuals who have those uh, documents can actually travel out of these border areas For the other individuals, there are checkpoints before you leave the border areas where immigration officials ask everybody, including myself, whenever I drive through that area, you have to declare your citizenship. So at that point in time, Title 42 could be uh, imposed on those on those migrants who entered the country illegally. Or they could also be uh, processed under Title VIII, which means they could be ex- not only expelled, but they could be deported from the country. So it's, it depends. Now, the migrants that I've been talking to here, they're very confused because they don't quite understand the process in the United States. So they're trying to figure out how it, it, it impacts them. And at this point, they really don't know. Yeah. yeah, understandably confused. I mean, this has been a battle that's been playing out. And Priscilla, uh, what's the sense of when we could actually see the final decision on Title 42? Because I, I know the White House, obviously, despite this, this reprieve, it's just temporary. So they have to still be preparing for this. Well, the court said that they would hear arguments in this case in their next session, which starts in February. So that means that we could get a decision on this sometime early to mid next year. But we heard from President Biden last night and he said he thought this was overdue. And all the same, the White House will comply with the order. But they're making it clear that during this time, they're also pointing the finger at Congress and saying that Republicans and Democrats should pass comprehensive immigration reform. Of course, you and I know, Caitlin, that this is an issue that has vexed Congress for years. It is an issue that has grown more politically contentious. So that is going to be a challenge in the interim. The administration says they will continue their preparations. You know, Rose, I wonder, we asked um, a lot of lawmakers yesterday. I asked one of the key officials in El Paso, you know, do you want the president to come to the border? Do you think additional attention 
on that would be helpful. I wonder what they want, what what the migrants that you've spoken to want in terms of focus from the federal government. If they if they talk about that, if that if that would be beneficial to them, are they focused on the immediate need of shelter, food, warmth? You know, there's a mixture because I think some of them are aware of the politics. They're aware of Title 42. Some of them are not aware of Title 42. And really, their focus is getting food for their children, is getting shelter for their children and getting out of this border area so that they can work in the United States. And Poppy, I got to say, there is a lot of confusion about some of the basic processes. Some of these individuals who are coming from Central and South America, the laws there are different. In some countries, you can just enter the country and begin working Mm -hmm. when they realize that here in the United States, you need documentation. It surprises them, and especially because there's so much misinformation in some of these countries. And this back and forth with Title 42 is really only given fodder for human smugglers, because I can't tell you how many migrants I've talked to who say they truly believe in their heart of hearts that the U.S. border is open because that's what they learn wow. in their communities. That's what they read on Facebook. That is what their understanding is. And so imagine their surprise yeah. when they sell everything they own. They trek their kids through a dangerous jungle. A lot of them have told me they smell death in the jungle that's between Central and South America and the Darien Gap. That, those are the conditions that are trekking their children because they strongly believe these human smugglers that this is their chance to enter the United States. This is their chance at the American dream. That's why they risk everything, only to find out that it's all a lie, that they might be expelled, that they might be deported, that they might be expelled into a very dangerous cartel-ridden northern Mexico City where they could be kidnapped. I mean, there are records. The Human Rights Watch has been keeping records of just how many migrants have been kidnapped, extorted, um, attacked violently since the Biden administration took office. Uh, their records show uh, more than 13,000 instances, and I'm sure that those aren't the only ones. I mean, I've interviewed women on the Mexican side of the border said that they've kid- been kidnapped. They've been raped after they've been expelled yeah. from the United States under Title 42. So it is so complicated, and, 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 and part of the problem is all of the mixed messaging on the United States. While sure. Democrats and Republicans keep fighting and, 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 and not deciding, and Congress doesn't pass immigration reform, it's fodder from human, for human smugglers, and the people caught in the middle are the migrants that you see behind me that are sleeping on a street in El Paso, Texas, thinking this is their shot at the American dream. Poppy. Rosa Flores. Thank you, Priscilla Alvarez. We really appreciate your reporting and your dedication to this, both of you. Thank you. Also just in this morning on the global front, we're now learning that the United States is considering a new COVID measure for people who are traveling to the United States from China. This is a development that comes after yesterday we reported that Beijing is easing their COVID protocols. CNN's Arlette Sines is live in St. Croix where the president is on vacation. Arlette, what are you learning about what changes might be on the way for when it comes to travelers coming from China to the United States? 
Well, Caitlin, the U.S. is considering imposing new measures on individuals traveling from China, and they say that this is due to the rise in cases that have been seen since the elimination of the zero COVID policy, but also concerns of what they say is a lack of transparent data coming from China. Now, these considerations are being made in consultation with public health officials, and one U.S. official told me that a decision about adding a possible testing requirement for those travelers could be made soon. Now, I want to read you a bit more of a statement from U.S. officials who said, quote, there are mounting concerns in the international community on the ongoing COVID-19 surges in China and the lack of transparent data, including viral genomic sequence data being reported from the PRC. They added, without this data, it is becoming increasingly difficult for public health officials to ensure that they will be able to identify any potential new variants and take prompt measures to reduce the spread. Now, these considerations are coming as some other countries like Japan and India have imposed some new steps for travelers coming from China. In, in both of those countries, travelers from China will be required to show a negative test upon arrival. The U.S. is looking at those measures, uh, talking to partners around the world and also public health officials. And the U.S. officials say that they are considering what options they might be able to take here in the U.S. But certainly uh, the end of the zero COVID policy and that rise in cases from China is something that the White House has been wa watching very closely. And today the U.S. is making clear that they also have those concerns about the transparency of the data that's been provided and that that could uh, prompt some additional measures to be added for travelers coming from China to the United States. Yeah, it just speaks to the major level of distrust between the United yeah. States and China. Arlette, thank you for that reporting this morning. All right, document burning, talks of QAnon, all happening inside the White House in the final days of the Trump administration. What we are learning from just released transcripts from the January 6th committee. Also, the death toll in western New York is rising. Crews there working around the clock trying to clear all of this snow, and they are searching for those who are still unaccounted for. Welcome back to CNN This Morning. Uh, this morning, much uh, new insight into what happened during the final days inside the Trump White House. Former aide in the Trump White House, Cassidy Hutchinson, now saying she witnessed former chief of staff Mark Meadows burning documents many times inside his office in that final month. She told the January 6th panel uh, in newly released transcripts, quote, so throughout the day, he would put more logs on the fireplace to keep it burning throughout the day. And I recall roughly a dozen times where he would throw a few more pieces of paper in it when he put more logs on the fireplace. Our Kristen Holmes uh, joins us now to talk about this. What, what I thought was key in this was when, after meetings with people like Rep. Scott Perry, that he was throwing away, well, not throwing away, burning these documents. Yeah, that's right, Poppy. I mean, the thing to point out here, too, is that this Cassidy Hutchinson testimony just continues to stun as we see the release of these transcripts. And even before we talk about the burning of the documents, it's really fascinating to see really the breakdown happening between her and her Trump-backed lawyer in these yeah. transcripts that were just released. You can actually see them going back and forth, bickering at points he stops her. Uh, and it shows why it was that she felt she needed to get a new attorney. Now, when it comes to the burning, as 
as you mentioned, I mean, obviously this is not the way to get rid of these kind of government documents. And she notes that this happened roughly a dozen times. Two of those instances, at least, were after she met, with, after Meadows met with Republican Pennsylvania Congressman Scott Perry, who has been linked to trying to use the Justice Department to overturn the 2020 election. So that is pretty fascinating. The other thing that really stood out to me was something that Meadows told several White House, House aides, which was that they should keep some of the meetings that were happening in the Oval Office on a, quote, close hold, meaning potentially that these didn't get onto the actual Oval Office diary. He said, let's keep some of the meetings close hold. We will talk about what that means. But for now, we will keep things real tight and private so that things don't start to leak out. And of course, Poppy, as we know, there's a reason that the Oval Office has mm -hmm. a diary. It's to keep a presidential record. Uh, keeping things off of it is, is highly suspect. Well, also, can I just say, when it comes to the, the documents, you know, Cassidy Hutchinson said she didn't know if these were originals, were they copies, right. or are they something that was supposed to be preserved? There's a Presidential Records Act where memos, letters, anything like that has to, that the president touches has to be reserved to be recorded. But also, if you walk around the West Wing, there are these brown bags by people's desks in the press office, other places in the West Wing. You can't just throw a document in the trash at the White House. You can't just throw away, you know, your notes. Huh. You have to keep them or they're in those brown destructed bags. with. Yeah, in a certain way. There is a very pro severe process for this inside the White House. So that's just why this is even more Not suspect that he's putting right. it. Yeah. It doesn't involve throwing it into your fireplace when no one is around. Yeah, and I will say that, you know, there's another testimony that I read last night, very lengthy. Johnny McEntee, who was a personal aide to the president, ran the pr presidential personnel office, who talked about, which we know, we've heard from multiple aides, that he witnessed former President Trump often tearing up documents after meetings when he was finished with them. Again, we've heard this before, but it is mm -hmm. always stunning to see that this was just the practice of how they dealt with these documents that, you know, again, as Caitlin said, have a very strict way of processing. So they go to the archives. We're talking about the president of the United States here. Yeah. And the chief of staff, Kristen Holmes, thank you for summing up what came out of those transcripts. I also want to bring in this morning CNN's senior law enforcement analyst and the former deputy director of the FBI, Andrew McCabe. And Andy, I just wonder when you are looking at these transcripts, as Kristen noted there, you know, we've known how Trump treated documents, how the White House viewed, you know, what typically is a very careful process when it comes to documents. But I wonder what you make of being able to read this transcript of Cassidy Hutchinson saying she regularly watched during one of the most sensitive periods inside that White House, the chief of staff burning documents regularly in his office. It's amazing, Caitlin, and the, the whole transcript is riveting to read, um, but specifically because of the picture that it paints of exactly what you've described, a White House that on multiple levels is actively and intentionally avoiding things like the Presidential Rack, uh, Records Act, uh, avoiding um, allowing meetings with the president, meetings around the Oval Office to make it to the official record of uh, who's coming and going and what sort of business is being done. It creates um, it creates an image of a White House that's actively trying to fly under the radar, trying not to leave any traces of what they're doing and meetings they're having with uh, certain individuals. And then you layer on top of that the burning of documents allegedly after meetings with Scott Perry, who later asks, is pretty insistent, according to Cassidy Hutchinson, on asking uh, for a potential pardon. So uh, the whole thing creates a very suspicious picture. And Andy, I thought your takeaway uh, more broadly from reading these transcripts is really important because you called it, quote, the single greatest case of group dereliction of duty that you have ever seen. It, it's extraordinary, Poppy. There is so much 
um, focus going on in the White House on January 6th um, across the staff, right, from the from the lowliest staffers all the way up to the president himself, constantly talking about things like tweets. What should the president tweet? And there is you know, a division of three different types of tweets that they talk about putting out. And they're constantly talking about massaging the message and how should the how should the president you know, talk to people. Nowhere, not one place, is anyone having a conversation about what should we do to stop this attack? Every one of those people swore an oath to protect and defend the Constitution. From the, from the transcript of Cassidy Hutchinson's testimony, there's no indication that anyone took any steps to pick up the phone and call the FBI, call the military, call the police, call the mayor of Washington, D.C., or the head of the Capitol Police to try to figure out how they could help stop the attack on the Capitol. It just did not happen. It's it's striking and uh, just confounding. And on a legal perspective, what did you make of Cassidy Hutchinson's transcripts where there were parts of the transcripts of their testimony where she had the Trump-backed attorney, Stephen Passantino, and then she switched to Jody Hunt. And you can see where Jody Hunt, when he came in, he said she wanted to clarify several portions of her, of her testimony where earlier when she was speaking, the attorney who is Trump-backed was kind of cutting her off, was jumping in to say, you know, he said, I don't want to shape your testimony, but he was often jumping in in those moments when she was being asked and answering questions from the committee. Really interesting, Caitlin. So, and and it's uh, helpful, I think, to read this transcript after we read the previous one that was released in which she talked to the committee about her struggles with uh, attorney uh, Stephanie Pasquino. So now knowing what was going on in the background during this interview that we got, yesterday. It's really fascinating. I should say, however, though, that some of those interjections by uh, Mr. Passantino are the sorts of things, excuse me, that you would expect to see from an attorney who is engaged in protecting their client. He's going to make sure that their client doesn't step beyond the the authority they have, makes it clear that they're maybe guessing about something or providing an opinion rather than a statement of fact. So some of that you should expect to see, but it's seeing it, understanding the the emotional kind of hand-wringing that she was going through at the time, her concerns about how Mr. Passantino might be communicating what's what she's telling him and what he's seeing in the interviews to people back in, as she says, Trump world. It's really a fascinating um, example of an attorney and a client whose interests are dividing or splitting and going in opposite directions. Mm -hmm. And of course, we know she solves that problem by hiring Jody Hunt. Yeah. Andy McCabe, thank you so much. Just stunning what we saw. Thanks for helping us understand it. Thanks. Next, the aftermath of this brutal, deadly storm. Authorities in Buffalo, New York, expecting to find, sadly, more bodies days after this blizzard. And this is something notable. It's been very quiet when it comes to House Republicans on George Santos. That is the congressman-elect from New York, who is now admitting that he lied about major aspects of his resume as he was running for Congress, and he'll be seated next week. This is ridiculous, you know? I feel like, yeah, holiday travel is gets hectic, but canceling flights for four days until the first for everybody, that's super, um, I don't know, it's, it's really unfortunate. Unfortunate is an understatement. Welcome back to CNN This Morning. We're glad you're with us. Coming up, full-fledged meltdown. That's a quote, and that is how one former high-ranking airline executive is describing Southwest Airlines' mass cancellations, what he thinks needs to be done. Plus, what to expect as another person involved in the plot to kidnap Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer prepares to be sentenced. 
And my favorite story of the morning, how Dallas Mavericks' Luka Doncic made history in a dominating win last night. Also, the challenges are far from over this morning. For people who live in Buffalo, New York, the death toll has continued to climb as the authorities there are still checking on homes and cars for anyone who may have been stranded in the storm. At least 31 people have died in New York's Erie County as Buffalo itself is still digging out of the nearly 52 inches of snow that they saw and still learning the true extent of the loss and the damage. CNN's Athena Jones is live in Buffalo this morning. Athena, what are you seeing on the ground? I mean, we see the snow behind you, but what are the authorities saying as they are trying uh, to basically get out of that snow still? Good morning, Caitlin. Well, the work is ahead, a lot of work is ahead of this city to dig out from this storm. And that work is continuing already this early this morning. We've already seen three or four trucks roll by, one came coming right behind us to scoop up uh, part of the piles of snow you see behind us. But they did one pass. It's going to take several more passes. We're talking about, as you mentioned, more than four feet of snow uh, piled up throughout this city. And on the way in, one of the most remarkable and most frightening things we saw on our way in was some of these vehicles uh, buried under several feet of snow. We know that some of those 31 deaths were in vehicles, people trapped in cars. And so that's going to be the big concern going forward as the city continues to dig out. I can tell you that officials have been focused, yes, on finding those people and on, on other life-saving and life-protecting measures. And so the big focus over the last two days and going forward has been to make sure that at least one lane of every single street in the city of Buffalo is cleared. And that will allow emergency operations to continue uh, in a normal, in a, in a full way. Also to allow uh, uh, supplies, you know, for, for grocery stores, drug stores, and that sort of thing, to be able to make it uh, through uh, this city. Uh, um, one of the concerns uh, is about, about how warm it's going to be getting over the next few days. Right now it's above 32. That's freezing. I'm not the weather person, but I can tell you that the forecast uh, shows that it's going to remain above freezing for the coming days. That should help with the cleanup, but there is some concern that with huge, huge amounts of snow piled up in certain areas, it could block drainage. So that's uh, another one of the concerns. But things look like they are going to begin to get, get back to normal here. We just saw a tweet from Buffalo's mayor saying that uh, several bus lines in the city are going to be restored uh, this morning, and then a, in a few hours, so will the rail line. So they're going to be beginning uh, to, to, to come back and dig out, but we just don't know uh, what is going to happen with that death toll uh, and, and whether more people will be discovered, you know, buried under some of these mountains of snow we've been saying, Caitlin. Yeah, it's not going to be an easy recovery process. Athena Jones, thank you for being there. That is so terrifying. This storm may be over, but you just heard Athena's reporting because the question is, what is the death toll finally going to be? And also, the snow is going to melt as it gets warmer, and that could cause potential flooding in western New York. Our meteorologist, Chad Myers, is with us. You're from Buffalo, so you understand this better than anyone. Mm -hmm. Uh, You got, what is it, 50-plus inches there? And when it melts, what's the flooding risk? Well, because the drains are clogged with the snow, all that water is going to end up in the street. And usually we see the freeze-thaw, freeze-thaw, where the streets just turn into a hockey rink. Well, we're not even going to get below 32 at night, so the freeze part is out of the question. But all of this snow, from Ontario back to Watertown and Buffalo, will all try to melt all at the same time. One more factor, the showers that you see here Friday, Saturday, and again on Tuesday, there will be more rain on top of that snow, trying to even wash it away 
rather quickly, and that's going to begin to raise the rivers and the creeks and the streams and obviously the streets as well. A lot of rain coming down in parts of the west as well. Now we really need it out here. Now don't get me wrong. This is significant snow coming down here for the Rockies and also for the Sierra. One of the computer models I looked at yesterday had over 300 inches of snow possible in the highest elevations around Yosemite. Now, I don't think we're going to get 300. That, that old thing, if a tree falls in the forest and nobody sees it, nobody hears it, did it really fall, did it make any noise? But will anybody see 300? No, because these are in the extremely highest elevations. But you know what? Lake Mead, all those reservoirs, Overville, all will take yeah. this runoff melt later in the spring. Yeah, yeah. they need it for sure. Chad, thank you yes, very much absolutely. for the update. Mm -hmm. uh, next, pretty much... Not total, but pretty much silence from House Republicans. It's certainly silence from House Republican leadership as outrage builds over the lies told by incoming New York Congressman George Santos. An election denier, Carrie Lake, has now been ordered by an Arizona judge to pay tens of thousands of dollars to the candidate who defeated her. We'll tell you why. Incredibly quiet at the top when it comes to House Republicans after Republican Congressman-elect George Santos admitted to a laundry list of falsehoods about his resume. At least two of his fellow incoming House Republicans are speaking out against him now, as he is still vowing to be seated when Republicans take control of the House next week. CNN's Eva McKend has been covering this story. She joins us now. Eva, I imagine given the fact that we're not hearing a lot of criticism from top House Republicans means that he's likely not going to face any, any backlash from the leaders of his party over this litany of lies. Well, Caitlin, there are certainly no indications that that is going to happen at this point. Two incoming Long Island House Republicans, though, have condemned the congressman-elect, with one calling for a House Ethics Committee investigation and potentially a law enforcement probe, too. Uh, but no, we're not hearing anything from House leadership. Uh, these lawmakers on Long Island speaking out uh, because, you know, they'll represent uh, districts in, in neighboring communities. Uh, one actually uh, in a neighboring district uh, that includes Westbury, where I have the opportunity to to travel to not long ago. And, you know, Caitlin, I get the sense that they're speaking out because they're hearing from their constituents. Congressman-elect Esposito said neighbors across Long Island are deeply hurt and rightfully offended. Uh, neither of them, though, notably, are calling for him to step down. This scandal now entering its second week with just a steady drip of new revelations. And the Republican leader, Kevin McCarthy, nothing to say. We also aren't hearing from other top House Republicans like Steve Scalise or Elise Stefanik, who endorsed Santos. Santos, of course, also under deep scrutiny for his comments about his alleged uh, Jewish heritage. He was asked about this during a contentious uh, Fox News interview last night. Take a listen. My heritage is Jewish. I've always identified as Jewish. I was raised a practicing Catholic. I think I've gone through this. Even I've not not being raised a practicing Jew. I've always joked with friends and circles, even with in the campaign. I'd say, guys, I'm Jewish. Remember, I was raised Catholic. So the problem here is that his response on this has not been consistent. You know, he is now saying he's long maintained he is Jewish. Uh, but even the Republican Jewish coalition says they were deceived and that he won't be welcome at any future events. Caitlin? Yeah, I'm going to guess part of the reason we have not heard from Kevin McCarthy is because he did previously say he would vote for Kevin McCarthy. And Kevin McCarthy needs every vote he can get when it comes to that speakership position. Eva McKent, thank you so much.
Well, happening this morning, the final man convicted in the 2020 plot to kidnap Michigan's Governor Gretchen Whitmer will be sentenced. A federal judge sentenced the architect of the plot, Adam Fox, to 16 years in prison on Tuesday. Our Gene Casares joins us now. Good morning to you. Uh, so this, this man we're talking about who's going to get sentenced this morning is Barry Croft, and I wonder what prosecutors are recommending. Well, this is Barry Croft, so we will see because they are very different and distinct. But Adam Fox was yesterday. This is who the, the government had said was the leader because he recruited, he sought out the, the vacation home of the governor, Gretchen Whitmer. He actually took measurements and he raised the money and he just furthered the whole plan. And remember, he was convicted, along with Barry Croft, of conspiracy to kidnap the governor of Michigan. You know, the term of years was very, very wide and broad. The judge had a lot of discretion. Term of years versus life imprisonment. Of course, the government wanted life imprisonment. One thing that helped them in theory was this leadership role because it allowed for more years. The fact that she was an official victim, the governor of Michigan, that helped them. And then also the fact that they were furthering terrorism gave them more years, 16 years. We want to show others that have been convicted in all of this. Now, some of them are on the state level, so you can't compare. But because of this leadership, one of the uh, elements in criminal law on the federal level is that you have to have at least five followers. Well, these were all designated as followers yesterday in that courtroom to make Adam Fox the leader, but the government actually said there were about 13 followers in all. The judge really spoke about why he made the decision he did. He didn't want the term of years too extreme. He wanted it necessary. One thing he said, and let's look at this, he said, quote, there is need for public understanding of the cost of this kind of wrongdoing and certainly for specific deterrence as well. And there is impact on our overall governmental system, not just the physical threat to our sitting governor. It is the emotional baggage that now our governor will have to carry. And the defense in all this was saying that the childhood the way he was raised with no love, the mental issues, the substance abuse issues that led to all this. And there were mitigating factors that actually helped him in the sentencing. Oh, that's that's interesting. Jean, thank you thank for you. laying this all out. We'll see what happens with that final sentencing this yep. morning. Ahead, why a major leading Wall Street bank says... It's more likely we're going to avoid a recession in the United States next year. News a lot of people want to hear. Also this morning, CNN sitting down with parents who lost their son to fentanyl as they are turning their pain into action. What is it that goes through your mind before you step out onto the stage? I hope we reach them. I see their faces. I just scan the room and they're listening and absorbing it. And I just think, God, please let us reach them. Recession or not, that is the question. That's my Shakespearean Worst game twist. ever. <laughs> this worst game ever. After nearly a year of conflicting headlines about the economy, the question of whether the U.S. will enter a recession remains top of mind. We've heard warnings from experts and business leaders saying the worst is yet to come, but major Wall Street, a major Wall Street bank is now seeing things a little bit better. In a report this week, Goldman Sachs writes, quote, our most out-of-consensus forecast for 2023 is our call that the U.S. will avoid a recession and instead continue progressing toward a soft landing. I guarantee this is welcome news to the administration. Our CNN business reporter, Matt Egan, joins us now. Um, So I remember sitting down with David Solomon, the CEO of Goldman Sachs, what was it, like six months ago, who was pretty bearish. 
Uh, but now Goldman sees something better. Yeah, well, Keelan Poppy, it is so nice to be here with some positive news for a change <laughs> after a pretty crazy year. I mean, here we have the most powerful bank on Wall Street, right? Goldman Sachs, their economics department coming out and taking a stand against this gloom and doom that we've been hearing. I mean, we know that this economy has a problem. It's high inflation. I mean, it's like a disease. And we've had the Federal Reserve come in and they've been treating this disease with really heavy duty medicine, right? Interest rate hikes. And I think the concern all year has been that they're going to over medicate the patient, right? They're going to pump it with so much medicine that it's going to collapse the economy into recession. But Goldman Sachs is saying, you know, not so fast. They think the medicine is working, right? Inflation has come down. And they think that consumers are going to keep spending and the economy is going to actually avoid a recession. And there are some real positives in this economy, right? Inflation is cooling off. It's still high, but it's cooling off. Gas prices are at 16-month lows. GDP is positive, And unemployment is really low. You know, I looked up... Just for you, Caitlin, I looked up the unemployment rate in Alabama. So nationally, nationally, it's 3.7%, which is low. Alabama, 2.7%. That's down from almost 14% in 2020. And Poppy, in Minnesota, where you're from. Oh, thanks for not leaving me out. I would never. 2.3% uh, unemployment. That's tied for the second lowest in the country. So these are really, really strong numbers. So when I was home for Christmas, I was telling Poppy, the main thing that I heard from family and friends was, complaining about the price of eggs and how expensive things still are. You know, you were saying inflation is still hot. What are the other things that Goldman is looking at when they are predicting this? Is it supply chain recovery, inflation they think is going to ease up more? Like, what does that look like? Right. They think that the Fed's interest rate hikes are cooling inflation. They also talk about the supply chain improvements. They just also think that wages are going to do better than people thought, right? Paychecks are starting to actually keep up with inflation, which is a big, important shift. Yeah. And so in the future, they think that people are going to actually gonna continue to spend. We saw holiday shopping numbers that were just out showing that people are continuing to shop. Right? You don't want to ever bet against American consumers. Um, I do think that, you know, People need to be careful, right? I mean, you don't want to necessarily uh, buy into all of the doom and gloom, but also you got to be careful, right? I mean, this is probably not the best time to uh, splurge on like a big purchase on a, an appliance or a car that's out of your budget. It's never a good time to uh, only make a minimum payment on your credit card. This is probably the worst time. Credit card rates have never Record, been right? higher. Yeah. Right. So you, you do have to be careful. But I think there are some real reasons for optimism. I love this. Thanks for the. Can you come back daily with good news? I would we'll love to. Yeah, that's what the audience is saying too. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, it's great, and this would be such welcome news to Powell and the administration. And I think maybe it will mean companies lay off less than they had been preparing for in 2023. That'd be right, good. Right. And I, when I talk to White House officials, I mean, they are preaching cautious optimism, right? I mean, they don't think that there's going to be gangbusters growth next year, right. but they do think there's a real shot at a soft landing where awesome. recession doesn't happen and inflation does does really come down so. thank you matt thank you guys we'll Good see if they hit that soft landing we will see uh pre preparations that are way for new year's eve you see many crystals there being installed on the times square new year's eve ball anderson and andy are back for another global celebration join them new year's eve live from times square starting 8 p.m eastern saturday night right here on cnn don will join as well live from new orleans Okay, ahead, our coverage of Southwest Airlines' meltdown continues. How cancellations are looking this morning. How officials plan to hold that airline accountable.
Welcome back to CNN This Morning. In sports this morning, Mavericks superstar Luka Doncic leads a comeback for the ages. My favorite story of the morning. One of the greatest performances in NBA history. Coy, the control room made sure that I knew how to pronounce Doncic. I'm married to a Serb. Of course I know how to pronounce Doncic. Uh, and we're very happy in the Babsik household this morning about this. Oh, it's a great, great morning. Good to see both of you. Christmas is over, but Luka Doncic is the gift that keeps on giving fans in Dallas. He became the first player in NBA history to record a 60-point, 20-rebound, 10-assist stat line in a game. The Mavs three-time All-Star crushing the Knicks' hopes and dreams. The Mavs were down nine with 33 seconds to go. But Doncic carries the team on the shoulder like Santa with a big bag of toys. He ties the game, watch this, by intentionally missing the free throw, grabbing his own rebound and getting the put back himself. In the last 20 years, no NBA team had ever come back when trailing by at least nine with 35 or fewer to go. In overtime, Luka would pour in seven of Dallas's 11 points to bring him to 60 on the night. And after Dallas's 126-121 win, Luka wanted to pour a cold one. I'm tired as hell. <laughs> you can rest later, you're young. I need a recovery beer. <laughs> it wasn't a recovery beer. Uh, but his teammates were waiting for him in the locker room with a nice, refreshing water bottle shower. Now, isn't that how we finish the show every <laughs> yes, morning, Yes, that's too, what right? I After do. A good one? <laughs> it's totally what we do at 901. I've never that's heard the right. phrase recovery beer, but I love that. <laughs> I love it, yeah, too. All over it. Uh, thanks for making our morning, Coy. You got Appreciate it. it. CNN This Morning continues right now. All right, good morning, everyone. Don is off this morning. Southwest Airlines, though, coming under federal scrutiny as officials are vowing to hold the company accountable for the meltdown that has left thousands of passengers stranded. More flights have been canceled today, and the chaos is expected to continue into the new year. Also overnight, the Supreme Court handing a victory to 19 Republican-led states ordering Trump-era border restrictions known as Title 42 to remain in effect for now. She says that she thought that her daughter was going to die overnight because it was so cold. Thousands of migrants in limbo and in serious danger at the southern border. We are live in El Paso with our Rosa Flores talking to them about their dangerous journeys. Also new this morning, a big development as the U.S. is now considering new COVID measures for people traveling from China is chining. China is easing its restrictions. But we start with what's happening here in the U.S. No end in sight to the chaos that has been created by the meltdown at Southwest Airlines. The company now under federal scrutiny as they are confirming that today more than 60 percent of the flights have already been canceled. The CEO, Bob Jordan, is insisting that the airline is doing everything possible to return to normal. I want everyone who is dealing with the problems we've been facing, whether you haven't been able to get to where you need to go, or you're one of our heroic employees caught up in a massive effort to stabilize the airline, uh, to know is that we're doing everything we can to return to a normal operation. And please also hear that I'm truly sorry. Adrian Broadus is live for CNN this morning at Chicago's Midway International Airport. Adrian, you spoke to passengers yesterday who were incredibly frustrated by what these cancellations were doing to their plans. What are you hearing there this morning? 
It's quieter this morning, Caitlin, but those passengers who we heard from were frustrated. We've seen some progress, but certainly not perfection. And, and you can see that for yourself if you look behind us here where all the bags have piled up. Some of the areas are thinner, but we see uh, there are crates like this where these bags have been brought over from carousels five and six. We saw crews pulling these bags over yesterday as flights were actually coming in. Some bags were left behind, but still a familiar scene. If you look at the information board, you still see canceled flights. Some flights are arriving, but as you mentioned, Southwest has reduced its scheduled schedule and canceled more than 60% of its flights. And passengers, even some of the most loyal Southwest customers, says there needs to be a change. This last 48 hours has been the worst fiasco I've ever seen in the last 20 plus years with Southwest. This is one of those moments where I think there needs to be some type of federal intervention because this is just clearly whoever is guiding the ship has lost their way at this uh, company right now and they have completely bungled this in ways that have really caused great hardship to a lot of folks. And the transportation secretary calling for accountability, even speaking about fining some of the airlines. One thing that is different this morning, some Southwest crews are inside of this, shall we call it, the new baggage area as passengers show up to collect their bags. Caitlin and Poppy, I'll send it back to you now. Yeah, amazing. I mean, Pete Buttigieg is saying that they're going to just not only make sure they get through what's happening now, but make sure it also doesn't happen again. Adrian Broaddus, thank you. Well, this morning, uh, Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg is vowing to hold Southwest accountable for these mass cancellations. Listen to this. I understand you just spoke directly with the CEO of Southwest Airlines. Did you get any explanation at all for this horrendous meltdown of epic proportions? Well, meltdown is the right word. This is an unacceptable situation. You look at the number of passengers who are stranded. Uh, you look at how hard it is even to get somebody on the phone to address it. Uh, from what I can tell, Southwest is unable to locate even where their own crews are, let alone their own passengers, let alone baggage. Passengers, as you've been hearing from all morning, having a very hard time getting in touch with anyone on the phone for customer service, trying to rebook flights or find lost baggage. Employees themselves, if you can believe it, have not been able to reach or communicate with the airline. I want you to listen to what Lynn Montgomery, she's the president of the Southwest Flight Attendants Union, told CNN about the system. The phone systems that the company uses uh, is just not working. They're just not manned with enough manpower in order to give the scheduling changes to flight attendants. And that's created a ripple effect that is creating chaos throughout the nation. So let me uh, bring in now former vice president of American Airlines and now an aviation consultant, Scott Nason. Scott, thanks very much for being with us. How how can this happen? How can an airline uh, in 2022 be operated largely by reliance on a 1990s phone system? Because that's the crux of this, right? Well, I think there, I think there are several cruxes. That seems to be one of them. Um, and the simple answer is I don't, I don't, I don't understand how, how this can happen either. Um, on the one hand, uh, scheduling crews is, is complicated. 
and recovering from what the industry calls off-schedule operations, putting the airplanes and the crews back together again, is a very difficult problem. Um, but airlines have been working on this for a long time. And we built systems to deal with it 35 years ago and have improved them over the years. Uh, so the systems are better, the algorithms, algorithms are better, uh, the communications are better, cell phones and texting and, and giving the crews access to the, to the systems from home. Um, it's, hard, it's hard to understand how Southwest could have gotten themselves in this situation. So what's different? You are a high-ranking executive American Airlines. What, what's the system that an American or a United or a Delta uses that is so different than the system that Southwest uses? Well, I'm, I'm not specifically familiar with Southwest. I will tell you that most of the big airlines built their own systems, but you can also buy a system uh, from off the shelf from another company that will take this problem and, say, and says, okay, our airplanes and crews are out of position. Here's the schedule we're trying to fly. What is the best thing to do? How do, how do we put things back together again? How do we marry crews with the airplanes and fly as much of the schedule as possible? And these systems and algorithms were put in place from, uh, over the last 10, 20, 30 years. So I'd love your reaction to something else that uh, the Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg said to Wolf yesterday. Here he was. I also talked with uh, union leadership from the pilots and from the flight attendants. Uh, they've made clear that they have been raising the alarm about uh, these issues in their systems for some time and that this really has to do with decisions and choices in terms of the investments uh, that this airline has made or has failed to make over the years that seem to be catching up to them now. How long will this fix take, do you believe? Well... My, my, my sense is that fixing the communications problem is, is probably the easier fix. Mm. It, it, ought, it ought to be possible to put in place uh, the manpower, the uh, electronic communications in order to be able to better reach your crews relatively quickly, uh, say, say within the first year. Um, but building a system to help them solve this problem. So imagine what, the, what they're looking at is they've got airplanes and crews all over the place and very few of their scheduled flights, of which they have, I think, about 4,000 a day, are prepared to operate without some intervention. Building the system to help their, their crew schedulers and their, and their operations control people to figure out what to do is a harder problem. And if they really don't have anything in place to help them with that today, yeah. they might be looking at a couple of years uh, or more uh, to get a good system in place to, to be able to handle the problem the way American and, and probably United and Delta do. A couple of years. Okay, quickly, Scott, before you go, and thanks for this insight. It's so helpful to, to help us understand. One of the reasons I think so many people love Southwest is because it's more affordable than a lot of the bigger carriers. Can they make this these fixes and remain as affordable as they've been? Well, I think they have to. Uh, I don't think I don't think they have any choice at this point whether or not people to judge and the DOT decides to impose uh, legal legal uh, sanctions or or obligations. Uh, this is not something the Southwest can afford to have ever happen again. Yeah. So they're going to have to do that. Now, as your costs rise, um, <clears throat> it certainly is logical to expect fares to rise somewhat. Um, but they also are going to be governed by the marketplace. Yeah. And since their, their competitors have better systems in place already, uh, those airlines aren't going to be facing increased costs. 
And so Southwest is going to have to deal with the fact that their costs are rising faster than their, than their competitors are. Well, Scott Nason, you really helped us understand what's going on. So thanks very much for your time. My pleasure. Also this morning, thousands of migrants are now facing potentially months of more uncertainty after the Supreme Court's decision that the border restriction known as Title 42 is going to remain in effect, in effect for now. It was a brief unsigned order from the justices yesterday that halted a trial judge's ruling that would have lifted the measure. Obviously, this is the measure that allows for the swift expulsion of migrants who could potentially seek asylum. Instead, the court granted that Republican-led request to prevent the winding down of Title 42. The court says it will hear arguments from the case from these Republican-led states in February CNN's Rosa Flores is live in El Paso, Texas. Rosa, you've been reporting on how these migrants are feeling, and I'm sure, understandably, a lot of them are confused by what this development means for them. No, you're absolutely right, Kaylin. There is a lot of confusion because these migrants are trying to figure out how it's going to impact them. And of course, this is all on a case-by-case basis, so it depends. But because they're already in the United States here in El Paso, there's a sense of calm. And so what they're focusing on right now are the basics, food and shelter. One-year-old Brenda has no shoes. Her tiny feet bare on the cold pavement of an El Paso parking lot. Are you going to sleep outside again? What are you going to do? Her parents, Anthony Blanco and Glenda Matos, say they wrapped this rosary around her ankle for protection when they left Venezuela four months ago and say it has saved her life multiple times in the Darien Gap, a dangerous jungle between South and Central America. He says that the most dangerous part of the journey was through the Darien Gap. He and his daughter almost lost their lives three times, and they say that they saw adults who died. They saw children who died. Brenda's most recent brush with death, they say, crossing the Rio Grande into El Paso. She says says that she thought that her daughter was going to die overnight because it was so cold. They had just crossed the river. They were wet. Desperate, Mato says she started knocking on doors, asking for help. She says that she prayed to God that she hugged her daughter as tight as she could and tried to warm her with her own body heat as much as she could to try to save her daughter's life. The Blanco family is part of the growing number of migrants who are crossing into the U.S. during this latest surge. This is the Supreme Court rule that the Trump-era pandemic public health rule, known as Title 42, remains in place while the legal challenges play out. Migrants like them line the streets of El Paso near a Catholic church that turns into a shelter overnight. Many here have no money for transportation and some have no family in the United States. He says that they don't know anyone. The Texas National Guard erected over two miles of fencing along the U.S. side of the Rio Grande in El Paso in the past week. The barrier is not deterring up to 1,600 migrants Border Patrol is encountering every day, a federal law enforcement source says. Migrants like Selena Varela, a Venezuelan mother of two, has decided to wait in Ciudad Juarez, Mexico, where she says shelters are at capacity, which means sleeping on the street. Officials there say they don't know how many migrants are waiting in their city for Title 42 to end. 
advocates and officials in the three northern Mexican cities of Tijuana, Reynosa, and Matamoros estimate nearly 22,000 migrants are waiting in shelters, on the streets, and in camps. As for the Blancos, they credit the rosary with the tiny image of Our Lady of Guadalupe for saving them during their journey. Brenda and her parents are still here in El Paso, and they've been staying at that parking lot that you saw in that story. Now, her parents are trying to raise money, Poppy, to get out of the border area, out of El Paso, but they don't have any money, and they don't have any family in the United States. And that's the situation that a lot of these migrants that we've been talked to are in. They just don't have money. They don't have connections in the United States, and so they're stuck here. And I, I think what often gets lost, Rosa, and thank you for that great reporting, um, it, what gets lost in this conversation is that to seek asylum is a legal action. It is legal for people to go through the process and seek asylum in the, in the United States. But you have some really interesting reporting on how backlogged that system is for people that even get in that line. You know, you're absolutely right. And the, the backlog is of historic proportions. There's a group at Syracuse University that crunches all this data. And according to their data, the number of immigration cases and immigration courts here in the United States and at USCIS nears 1.6 million cases. And they say this is the highest on record. And they say that it's a sevenfold increase since 2012. And, you know, what's the impact of Title 42 on all of this? Well, effectively, Title 42 stops migrants from going to a port of entry and seeking asylum, which is supposed to be legal in the United States. But that's not happening right now because of Title 42. But the impact is that because of the surge that's happening, because there's so many migrants coming to the border hoping to enter the United States, those numbers are just shooting through the roof. Probably between October and November, those that federal data shows that more than 30,000 asylum cases were added just during that short period of time. And that's expected to continue. As you can see behind me, a lot of these people, what they want really is asylum. And here's the thing, the, the wait just for a hearing right now, according to this group, could be more than four years. Poppy. And they can't legally work during that time, right? You know, you're absolutely right. If you if they are not here legally in the United States, they can't work. Once they are in the asylum process, legally they can file for an application for a work permit. But I've covered those stories too, Poppy. There's been backlogs yeah. on that too. So even if they have an application, even if they qualify for that work permit, sometimes they are um, uh, delays on that and their hands are tied. They can't work. It's remarkable reporting. Rosa Flores, live in El Paso. We'll check back in with you. Thank you. Also this morning, we're learning about how the United States is considering a new measure, a new restriction on people traveling to the United States from China as Beijing is easing their travel protocols, getting rid of that quarantine period that was required when you initially went to China, where CNN's Selena Wang is live in Beijing. Selena, what are you hearing from Chinese officials about their concerns about these measures that the United States might put in place here? 
Well, Caitlin, Beijing's response is basically to defend its own decisions and to urge countries to work together. This was at a press briefing when the ministry also accused Western countries and media for hyping up and distorting China's COVID policy changes. Now, this is what the foreign ministry said in specific about the possible moves from the U.S. It said, quote, we need all parties to work together scientifically against the epidemic to ensure the safe movement of people between countries, maintain the stability of the global industrial supply chain and promote the resumption of healthy growth in the world economy. China has always believed that the measures taken by countries to prevent the epidemic should be scientific and moderate and should not affect normal people-to-people -people exchanges. Now, Caitlin, the irony here is that since the start of the pandemic, China has had some of the strictest border controls in the world. But now that the country is finally abandoning zero COVID, starting to open up and cases are surging, other countries, they're now getting nervous. U.S. officials said they're concerned about the lack of transparent data from China, including viral genomic sequencing, which makes it difficult, the U.S. officials say, to identify any potential new variants from China. The U.S. said they are considering a testing requirement for travelers from China, so far, Japan, India, Taiwan, and Italy's Lombardia region have put COVID testing requirements in place for travelers from China. Caitlin. Yeah, there's a real sense of distrust between the United States and China on what these numbers look like. Uh, Selena Wang, thank you so much for, for that reporting on that response. Up next, we're going to talk about more on the Southwest Airlines meltdown. It's still underway. It has forced one Arizona family to drive across the country to make their son's Christmas wish come true. They're going to join us live during that journey next. All right, we've been talking about the chaos happening at Southwest Airlines all morning. It's very serious for all of these thousands of flyers that have been caught up in it. One family that has been also caught up in this is a family that is now going the distance to make their son's Christmas wish come true. Bowen's only wish this Christmas was to go to the NHL Winter Classic to see the Bruins play at Fenway. But after Southwest delayed and ultimately canceled their flight from Arizona, they decided to drive. Tim and Kelly Marr started their journey in Arizona. They are joining us now from Ohio as they are making their way and as they are also along with their children, as you can see them there, Sullivan, Sailor, Ireland, and Bowen, thank you all for being here. I mean, this is just a remarkable journey that you have been on, that you have embarked in. I know it's in the hopes of making this Christmas wish come true, but tell us just basically what the last, you know, 36 hours of your life has looked like. Yeah, I think a little bit of a whirlwind when we made the decision in Terminal 4 in Sky Harbor on Sunday to turn this into a drive. And I remember my husband saying, guys, this is a really big commitment. Is everybody up for this? And I, I think probably secretly we were dreading it a little bit, but um, we actually have laughed a lot and had lots of smiles. We were saying that yesterday morning we, we left um, super early. We got into the car at four o'clock in the morning and our stop that early was in Tulsa. And we met lovely women in Tulsa at the gas station wishing, wishing us a wonderful journey. And, so that certainly helped to, to pump us up a little bit, but it's it's been a little bit of a whirlwind. Hey, Maybe if we sat and thought about it a little bit longer, we we would we wouldn't have done this. But I'm not sure. But I'm glad that we did. You're probably going to be some of your best family memories, honestly, from from this car. Hey, Bowen, do you realize how awesome your parents are? <laughs> yeah, I've noticed. I've took note. <laughs> well, I mean. 
we talk about the family memories, and yeah. you guys have amazing attitudes about this, but I know this is also pretty expensive. I mean, this is a very long drive. It would be 40 hours to go the whole way. And so do, have you done, have you added up the cost of, of how much it costs to rent a car for the gas? You know, I know you don't know whether or not your bags are going to be there when you make it, uh, where it's going to be very cold where you're going. So we, we like to travel, but we had an idea. We had some cars set aside and we were just wanting to get to Chicago if we could, but that got canceled. So we just went over to Nation, uh, Enterprise. Enterprise at the South uh, Phoenix Sky Harbor. And just, what do you have? We got to go. There's really no choice. We, we, we were going to go no matter what. But, uh, yeah, the guy there, Will, he was awesome. Got us in a, a big truck. There six of us. And uh, went home, went to bed, packed a couple extra things because we do not have our luggage yet. Hoping it's going to be in Manchester. But uh, that was a big deal for us, too. That's why I started. These are funny. I, I just had thoughts about Southwest canceling. My flight was irritating, but I'm walking around and there's people everywhere. And, and there's just, there's flight attendants standing there. There's pilots, but they can't get through to the company to get, I don't know if it's approval to get onto the plane. I don't know how it works for the, for that, but I'm thinking about people's luggage. They're not able to get their luggage for a week. I'm thinking, this is crazy. People have gifts or medication or uh, electronics in those bags. They just handed you thinking they get it in a couple of hours and they're not going to get it for a week. If that, I don't know, but it, it was just, it just, those are just my thoughts. I started tweeting out like Southwest, where are you? Like I, it was just, it was the oddest thing. Cause we're a loyal Southwest family, like 20 plus years. We look nowhere else except Southwest. They're so fun. But this was the first time I've really seen it collapse. So what about and, and the people, the, the workers at the, 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 the counter, the counters, the ground crew, they were awesome. It was just, they were trying to get in touch with people that they couldn't talk to. They were on hold for four or five hours. So. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they're going through so much, too. Those pilots, flight attendants, folks behind the desk working there trying to get answers from, from the airline, too. Hey, I wonder, you, you say how loyal you guys are to Southwest. Do you think that remains after this? You know, it's hard to say. Someone asked me that yesterday, and we've got a little quick trip in um, in January that is Phoenix to Anaheim that would be a super inexpensive flight and save a lot of time. And I think, well, the drive is five and a half hours, and I don't know that we would risk sitting. It's the time lost, right? I mean, we were at the airport at noontime on Sunday and finally made the call at 10.30 p.m. that we needed to go. We could not afford to lose any more time if we were going to drive. And that's that's what we face. We've got the flights home on January 6th from um, from Manchester that we're sitting here saying, are we going to get back in the car or are we going to risk trying to get for it's not just, oh, do you have an extra seat? It's six people. This is very, very impactful. So we're certainly thinking things through. Um, It's certainly caused pause. That's what I would say. And we have to get back to work as well. And I hate to say it, but. I can't rely on Southwest to get the family us home. So we might have to leave a little early to drive ourselves back. And again, you know, it's, it's, this has been a good memory for the family. We've had a lot of fun, but at the same time, it's, you'd like to be able to rely on a carrier to get you home, but we just can't, we might not be able to, you know, rely on them at, at this time. We are rooting for you guys. Kids do not ask your parents. Okay. Are we there yet? <laughs> do not say that. Okay. And uh, you guys send us, send us a picture, send us a picture from the Winter Classic. Thank you and good luck. Good luck.
Good luck. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you, guys. My kids would not be that patient. I know. I mean, what a like they have an amazing attitude about all of this. It's it's kind of remarkable to see. And they were saying, you know, they didn't even get uh, an offer for a voucher from Southwest. They were very loyal to Southwest, and now here they are. You know, it's incredibly expensive to drive across the country. And the hotels. I hope they get totally reimbursed. Um, Okay, uh, ahead. Uh, just terrifying, the fentanyl epidemic in this country. And fentanyl overdoses in Los Angeles County have increased more than 1,200% over the last six years. Coming up, we have really unique reporting on this. We will show you two parents turning their pain of their son's death into action to help prevent more deaths from happening. As hard as it is to talk about it and as hard as it is to share the story, um, I feel him with me when I do it. Welcome back to CNN This Morning. The fentanyl crisis in this country is gripping so many families. A California family says their son accidentally took what he thought was a pain pill that he bought from someone on Snapchat. The teenager later died from fentanyl poisoning, and now this family is urging other parents to pay attention to the dangers of this powerful Synthetic opioid, our Josh Campbell reports. I found Zach um, asleep at his desk. His head was laying down on his arm. I could feel before I even touched him that something was horribly wrong. Every parent's worst nightmare. 17-year-old Zach Didier found unresponsive in his room two days after Christmas of 2020. Medics arrived and began resuscitation efforts, but it was too late. And I started resuming CPR. And they just stood there and I got mad at them and said, guys, help me save my boy. When they didn't, I started trying to talk to Zach and begged him, don't go. Come back. Please come back. Do not go. I walked up and Chris just said, our baby is gone. We sat down with Chris and Laura Didier inside Zach's old high school theater classroom, surrounded by memories of their son. He loved school, he loved sports, he starred in the musical. Zach was such a stellar young man. (laughs) He always wanted to help other people. Zach's sudden death initially a mystery to investigators, but the Placer County coroner near Sacramento had two theories on the day of his death, either an undetected medical issue or fentanyl. And that further spiraled us into, into confusion. <laughs> yeah, debilitating yeah. confusion. It's like, why would you say that word? We had no red flags of Zach having struggles with any kind of drug use or addiction or depression. Nine out of every 10 overdose deaths in teenagers involves opioids and most commonly involves fentanyl. Dr. Scott Havlin is head of adolescent and young adult medicine at Boston's Mass General for Children Hospital. Fentanyl is so potent that teens, particularly teens who have never used an opioid before and have no tolerance to them, can die really quickly. We're talking within seconds to minutes. New CDC data indicate the most common place for teens to overdose is at home. And experts say there are various reasons they turn to pills. About two out of every five teens who overdose has a history of struggling with depression, anxiety, or other mental health problems. And in many cases, these problems have gone unaddressed. In Los Angeles County alone, health officials recently announced accidental fentanyl overdoses skyrocketed over 1,200% from 2016 through 2021. 
The problem is very serious, uh, not just in the city of L.A., but nationwide. To understand where many teens are obtaining fentanyl, we spoke with an LAPD narcotics detective. We agreed not to name him as his work involves undercover operations. The more personal uh, sites would be Facebook, Marketplace, Instagram, uh, and Snapchat. If you're buying it on a social media account or you're buying it from somebody on the street or a friend, then most likely it's going to be counterfeit. If you look at these photos, the fake pill looks just like the real pill. Uh, they sure do. The dealer's main objective is to get you hooked. And if you don't die from it, then you're a customer for as long as you live. In Zach Didier's case, his parents said he met a drug dealer on Snapchat who sold him a deadly fentanyl pill that Zach thought was a pain reliever Percocet. Zach's case was really the first for our county dealing with whether or not to hold someone who provides drugs to someone else who ultimately dies, whether or not to hold them responsible for their death, and if so, how much? The message to dealers are we are fed up. We are tired of seeing young people dying in our communities. Zach's dealer was sentenced to 17 years in prison. But Placer County's district attorney, who has advocated for aggressive charges against dealers, says prosecution alone won't solve the fentanyl crisis. The solution will be education and awareness and talking to parents, talking to teachers. I've had a lot of struggle and challenge. Warning families about the dangers of fentanyl has become a life mission for Zach's parents, who now spend countless hours going into schools, telling their shattering story. As hard as it is to talk about it and as hard as it is to share the story, I feel him with me when I do it. I feel him helping me find the words even. What is it that goes through your mind before you step out onto the stage? I hope we reach them. I see their faces. I just scan the room and they're listening and absorbing it. And I just think, God, please let us reach them. Such a truly, truly remarkable family. And for parents out there who might be wondering, how do I talk to my kid about fentanyl? Teen health professionals say that you want to approach the conversation in the spirit of curiosity, asking open-ended questions like, what do you know about fentanyl? What do you know about its deadly side effects? That will help create a dialogue. And just as important officials and uh, experts say that parents, as they are having these critical conversations, you want to do more listening than lecturing, guys. Really good advice. I'm so glad that you spent time with them and did that reporting. And obviously our hearts are broken for them, but grateful for what they're doing for other other families, trying to save other kids. Absolutely. Josh, before you go, can you help us understand, because so much of the focus in the past years has been on fentanyl and uh, China. But where is it coming from now, mostly? And how is it getting into this country? Yeah, it's so important, you know, especially in this era where we talk about immigration and building walls to keep out drugs and drug traffickers. Uh, what we're finding, particularly our colleagues at The Washington Post, who did a really remarkable uh, profile on how these drugs are getting into the U.S., they found that they're, most of them are rolling across the U.S. border at legal points of entry. Where I am here in Southern California, specifically down near San Diego, is ground zero. And, you know, most of the actual seized fentanyl in the United States is from that port of entry. And just to give you a staggering figure, uh, this analysis that the Post did found that only about 5 to 10 percent of fentanyl that is coming into the U.S. is actually being seized. And so that shows you how critical and serious this problem is. And finally, it's, it's worth pointing out that for these cartels, this is a billion dollar industry. And with those low capture rates, they can take the gamble to send people over. You know, if they get caught, that's fine. They're still they still stand to make a lot of money. And of course, the serious question that is raised by all of this is why isn't more being done to provide more resources yeah. there at the border to try to detect? some of this before it gets into the country. And why is the DEA so understaffed?
right now to deal with it. Josh, thank you for the fantastic reporting. Thank you. Republican leaders in the House are pretty quiet this morning over the series of lies from Congressman-elect George Santos that he told in the lead-up to his election. We'll talk about that with the Democrat who lost the race to Santos next. The reaction from Republican House leadership has been pretty muted as the incoming congressman-elect George Santos is facing controversy for fabricating his resume, something he now admits to. He seemed to backtrack his apology, though, during an appearance on Fox News last night, as he even defended his past claims about being Jew-ish. My heritage is Jewish. I've always identified as Jewish. I was raised a practicing Catholic. I think I've gone through this. Even I've not not being raised a practicing Jew, I've always joked with friends and circles, even with in the campaign, I'd say, guys, I'm Jew-ish. Remember, I was raised Catholic. Joining us now is Robert Zimmerman, who is the Democratic candidate who lost to Santos in that election. Good to be with you both. Thank you for joining us again on this. Sure. Do you think that he should resign? Oh, absolutely. I've called for his resignation without question. In fact, I said, I said publicly that he, if he's so, if it, actually, if his name is George Santos, let's get that straight. Assuming his name is George Santos, I think, in fact, he should resign his position. Do you based think upon it's the lies he would resign, though? Based on the lies he's told. And I said, if he's so confident that he's got, the, he's got the trust of the voter, I'd face him in a rematch. But, in fact, do I think he'll resign? No, I don't think he'll resign. I think he's a pathological liar. I think he's not capable of shame. But I do think the investigation that the New York State Attorney General has opened up, a House Ethics Committee investigation that more Republican, uh, a Republican member of Congress just called for recently, Congressman Nick Lolota, I think all that's leading to hopefully a Department of Justice probe. And I think those investigations could be real game changers over his personal money and how he used his money for his campaign. We were looking at the spread in the election and it was he won by about 7.5 percent. That was mm-hmm. about 20,000 votes. I wonder, A, what what, if anything, you've heard from, you know, constituents that you ran to represent since this. And if you think you would have won had they known how many lies were involved in his, you know, resume and his well, campaign. We had a Republican landslide in New York State, yeah. uh, as was well documented. We had four congressional seats that we yeah. hoped to have won. But of course, it lost and we lost it. It was an election defined by the crime issue. And that was very difficult. And that was really the dominant issue in the race. Uh, I think had there been this kind of national focus on the lies he told about about his education, about his job career, lying about his faith, using the, the tragic shooting, the Pulse nightclub and as a, as a political stunt. Or for that matter, lying about his connection to the Holocaust, using the Holocaust as a political prop. I think something as vile as that, I think had all that gotten this kind of national attention, yeah, it might have made a difference. I think it would have made a difference in the election. But the reality is it's about going forward right now, and it's much bigger than me. It's about holding him accountable and restoring trust in public officials. Well, and it's notable to hear him talk there, as he did on Fox, about his claims about being Jew-ish, because even Matt Brooks, who runs the mm-hmm. Republican Jewish Coalition, said that he misrepresented his, his history and he deceived them. They Wait. believe and they banned him from going to their events. Well, you know something? I think that's, that's important to note. I think it's important to see Republicans now speaking up more and more, right-wing media now challenging him and deserting him. I think that's all important. But I have to tell you, as a former president of American Jewish Congress on Long Island and a former Great Neck B'nai B'rith president, when the idea that he would actually use the Holocaust, the, the atrocity, the unspeakable tragedy of the Holocaust as a political stunt, it is such a hateful, 
disrespectful act to take towards the Jewish community. It really is the ultimate act of anti-Semitism when you try to manipulate and exploit a tragedy like that for political gain. We're out of time, but I'm sure you'll be back as we hear more. And we every day invite uh, Congressman-elect Santos on well, the, thank you the for program. Keeping, thank you for keeping a focus on this, because the next big scandal is going to be about his personal money and where it came from to loan his campaign. Well, I can guarantee you when he's on Capitol Hill next week, you know, the reporters are everywhere there, and they ask oh, questions yes. constantly. So Caitlin's going to be in D.C., so, you know. I have no doubt. <laughs> Thank you much for, very Thank much for you. joining us this Thank morning. Thank you so Thanks. much. A new documentary on the January 6th Capitol attack features more than 50 interviews with lawmakers no and first responders. You'll hear from them directly. The director is with us next. Welcome back. A new documentary exploring the Capitol riots on January 6th will premiere next week on Discovery Plus. And this is a film that tells the story of that day from a unique perspective of those who witnessed it firsthand. Watch. The plan at the very beginning was simple. The Capitol has been breached. The Capitol has been breached. We're in danger. You have Have to to leave the chamber. Lock the doors. We need to move now. Go, go, go. A shot fired. This is going to be bad. People were banging on the door. Trying to barrel their way into the main door of the U.S. House of Representatives. I cannot believe this is happening. I call my wife. You know, that phone call. I texted my uncle, my will. We need to be able to fight with something. We need to find weapons. I have my gun out on my desk to defend myself. We went from protecting the Capitol to surviving. I see one of my officers dragged away from me. It was an all-out battle. No matter how bad you were hurt, you had to get back in. I will not die in this hallway. Joining us is the director and executive producer of that film. It's called January 6th. It is Emmy and Peabody Award-winning filmmaker Jules Nadeau, also with his brother Gideon. The two of them have made documentaries, including... Uh, a fascinating one on 9-11. Thank you for being here. Thank you it's, for having me. It's unique because uh, you are the first to get such full access to the Capitol and Metropolitan Police Department and the people that saw it from that vantage point. But it's, you know, it always takes a lot of time. You know, the work my brother and I do going all the way back to 9-11, it's always a question of earning trust. You know, trust is, uh, is earned, it's not given. So there is a lot of process of, of explaining where we come from and what we want to do. And uh, to be able to get the uh, leadership of the Capitol Police and Metro Police, it took a lot of time to convince them of what we were trying to do, do an apolitical documentary. We're not journalists, we don't do investigation. We just wanted to show the people were there the minute by minute of, you know, that moment where life takes a turn that you don't know where it's going to go, and especially to show the humanity in the people underneath, uh, to remind people that underneath that uniform, there's a father, there's a mother, there's a son, there's a daughter. And they went from, through some pretty horrific and traumatic, traumatizing things that, that day. Yeah, and I, I was there in D.C. I was covering the White House when this happened that day, and it was just this haunting day where, you know, I remember going home, late at night after we had finished the coverage and there was a curfew in place. I couldn't get an Uber home because there was no one there to pick you up. And it was just this weird sense of the that had descended on the city where people felt unsafe in a place where typically you feel pretty safe. And I thought one thing you did here that was so interesting is talking about the human aspect of those people who went through that. And they all had loved ones who were at home who were watching this happen and were worried about them. But that's... 
you know, on September 11, my, I, I was in the, uh, in the lobby. I ended up in the lobby of the World Trade Center. And it's the same kind of things that I saw. These moments where you know you're okay, your family is watching from, you know, five miles or 6,000 miles away, and they don't know. And we wanted to highlight these moments where, you know, these moments of humanity and regardless, you know, on, on September 11, just like on January 6, I think you've seen some of the worst of humanity. But what's important to remember is in parallel to that, you always see the best in people rising up. And that's really what we wanted to show. These moments, of course, these overt uh, ways of, of courage, the first responders and you know, putting their life on the lines, but also these little moments of uh, humanity when we see uh, Representative Susan Weil, who thinks she's going to have a heart attack because of the stress. They're locked in the balcony of the house chamber and suddenly she feels someone putting her hand on her, on her shoulder saying, we're going to be okay, and it's Representative uh, Jason Crow. Just a little human moment like this can make the difference. And at these moments, we wanted to show. I can't wait to watch all of it. Thank you Thank very you. much for, for this and for the way you're telling this story. Thank you very much. Yeah. Thank you, Jules. Thank you. The documentary is January the 6th. It debuts next Thursday. You can stream it all on Discovery+. Plus. Good morning, everyone. We're glad you're with us. It is 8 a.m. Eastern. I'm Poppy Harlow. It's Caitlin Collins. It is December 28th. Welcome to CNN This Morning. Got a lot of news to get to today. Oh. I just can't believe this is still going on. Southwest? Yes. Yep, and that's where we start this hour. Southwest Airlines now facing uh, federal scrutiny as thousands of passengers remain stranded, some for more than a week, and the chaotic meltdown could continue into the new year, if you can believe it. Southwest today has already canceled 60% of their flights, and the CEO now issuing this video apology. I want everyone who is dealing with the problems we've been facing, whether you haven't been able to get to where you need to go, or you're one of our heroic employees caught up in a massive effort to stabilize the airline, uh, to know is that we're doing everything we can to return to a normal operation. And please also hear that I'm truly sorry. Also this morning, the Supreme Court has decided to temporarily keep in place that pandemic-era border restriction known as Title 42 amid legal challenges that the court is going to hear in February. It now could be months before those thousands of migrants whose stories we have been telling you that are desperately seeking asylum can actually get the chance to enter the United States legally. Newly released transcripts from the House January 6th committee's interviews reveal that former White House aide Cassidy Hutchinson told the panel that she saw former Trump White House chief of staff Mark Meadows burning documents in his office about a dozen times. She also told the committee there were several discussions in the White House involving QAnon conspiracies. Also, Russian forces have now killed more than 6,800 Ukrainian civilians since Russia first invaded Ukraine in February. Those are numbers coming from the United Nations Human Rights Commission. It's a report that came after Russian shelling on Tuesday destroyed a maternity ward that you can see here in the southern city of Kherson just moments after doctors had delivered two babies. Fortunately, no one was injured in the attack. And wait until you hear this story. A woman from Buffalo, New York, jumps into action, saves the life of a man stranded on an icy street during the winter storm using Facebook Live to get him the medical attention he needed. We will be talking to the very good neighbor, Shakira Autry, just ahead. But we begin with that major meltdown still underway at Southwest Airlines as the airline is now coming under federal scrutiny. More than 2,500 flights have already been canceled today as thousands of passengers 
are still stranded, struggling to figure out how they're going to get to their destination, where their baggage is. Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg is also now vowing to hold Southwest and its CEO accountable. Meltdown is the right word. This is an unacceptable situation. You look at the number of passengers who are stranded. Uh, you look at how hard it is even to get somebody on the phone to address it. Uh, from what I can tell, Southwest is unable to locate even where their own crews are, let alone their own passengers, let alone baggage. The CEO pledged to me uh, that they will not only meet, but they will exceed uh, the customer service standards and, and commitments that, uh, uh, that they have made to us in the past and uh, that we're in a position to enforce. CNN's Nick Valencia is live at Hartsfield-Jackson International Airport in Atlanta. Adrian Bradas is standing by at Chicago's Midway International Airport. Nick, let's start with you because I know Atlanta has experienced a lot of the after effects of this meltdown from Southwest. I know there's a ton of baggage that is there. What else are you seeing given Atlanta is the world's busiest airport? More and more cancellations today, Caitlin. That cascade of cancellations from Southwest Airlines continues for at least one more day, and the airline has just another day of bad news. And we want to take a look at some of those numbers here because the meltdown has created, according to their data here, 15,000 flights have been canceled since this meltdown started. And this morning, as of Wednesday morning, 62% of Southwest flights have been canceled, amounting to more than 2,500 flights. And it was yesterday that the CEO of the airline issued a video statement apologizing to those traveling on his airline, saying that this issue was really caught caused by a myriad of factors, including uh, antiquated technology systems, shortage of staff, as well as winter storms. And take a look at behind me here. This is the Southwest Airlines flight uh, line today. It's not many people, and that tells a real story here, punctuates just how many flights have been canceled. No many, uh, not many people in line because really no one is flying out today. For those that have been scheduled on flights that are scheduled to take off on time today, they're not yet breathing a sigh of relief. In fact, earlier I spoke to the Fitzpatrick family who said that they won't be happy until they finally make it back to Austin, Texas. They are scheduled to take off on time. Uh, but we also are uh, hearing from passengers who are really taking this you know, really, really personally. I spoke earlier to a woman who didn't want to go on camera. She was distraught, telling me through tears that she slept in the Atlanta airport for the last two days. She's trying to make it back to Columbus, Ohio. She says Southwest Airlines has not given her a refund on her ticket. She just doesn't have the money to get back home. Bottom line here, guys, Wednesday is gearing up to be another long day for those flying Southwest Airlines. Caitlin. Yeah, it's expensive to have your flight canceled. Nick Valencia, we'll check back in with you. Thank you for being yeah. there. All right, let's go straight to our colleague, Adrian Broda. She joins us in Chicago's Midway, which is a big airport for Southwest. Second most flight cancellations today there. What are you seeing? We still see the bags, by the way, behind you. So many. Oh, oh yeah, bags on top of bags on top of bags. And you see staff here trying to organize those bags. I've been doing some ear hustling this morning, AKA eavesdropping. And I did hear one of the supervisors say, we have got to get these bags organized in a better fashion. Right now, if you walk with me, you'll see that the bags are, it seems that they're organized by destination. For example, there is a sign that says Hawaii. There were more bags over here yesterday, I would like to know at this time. There's another sign that says Wichita. Anyway, they are organizing the bags. We were told yesterday, and there was an announcement over the PA telling passengers if Midway was not their final destination, the crew would not pull bags. Instead, 
those bags that are here would continue to their final destination. We spoke with a young lady who was traveling from Las Vegas to Chicago. She said she was stranded. Finally, when she arrived back here in Chicago, she waited in line two hours to retrieve her luggage. Listen in. You found your bag? They let me go on there and find them myself, and the Lord just, just took me on up there and found them, girl. Where was it? They just out everywhere. They all, you just, I had to walk. And I said, Lord, I know they're here. And I got all four bags. Four bags. We did see her walking around while she was searching for the bags. Meanwhile, we also talked to other travelers who drove all the way from Dallas, Texas, 14 hours, Poppy, to retrieve their luggage. So some progress, but certainly not perfection. And that uh, saying, pack your patience, has a whole new meaning for a lot of folks in the middle of this meltdown. No kidding. We hope it gets a little bit better uh, by the day. Adrian, thank you for that reporting. The Southwest chaos has forced Denver's airport to cancel more flights over the last two days than any other airport in the United States. CNN's Denver affiliate reports that Southwest customers there have been told more than 20,000 bags, 20,000 bags remain unclaimed. One traveler in the city approaching the, approaching the turbulent situation with a bit of humor Writing a sign asking, why is COVID better than Southwest? Because it's airborne. Joining us now is Alex Renteria, the director of communications for the Denver International Airport. Uh, Alex, I'm going to guess you did not write that sign, but I know that you have been dealing with so much of the fallout of this. So have your colleagues. 90% of the flights at Denver that have been canceled are Southwest flights, we are told. But I noticed what you said to us, that throughout the storm, all six of your runways remained open. You said your award-winning snow team can clear a runway in 15 minutes or less. So are you saying that the issues that you've had with Southwest, the cancellations you've seen, actually had nothing to do with the storm that came across the United States? Well, there's no real way to know. Our, uh, you know, our delaying cancellation database uh, doesn't say whether it's the maintenance of a flight or if it's a weather delay or if it's even maybe a staffing issue. Um, however, we did see, um, due to those extremely frigid temperatures, um, lots of our airlines were having issues. And right now we're seeing the ripple effects of that, especially with um, our partners at Southwest. You're the deputy director of communications, or the director of communications, excuse me. Have you ever seen anything like this before? The only thing remotely close was the bomb cyclone. Do you remember that? Yes, Yes, we had lots of slumber parties at the airport, but this is beyond that. And now the baggage is the issue that seems to be the big fallout that's going to be the next hurdle that you have to deal with. What's the plan to try to process all of that? So the airport has given space to the airlines um, that have uh, lots of luggage, including Southwest, um, and that's where they're organizing. So they're figuring out a process and we're supporting them with that. Um, and, you know, our hope is that we can get folks to where they need to go. The holidays are over and people need to get back to work. Do you have a sense of how long it'll take to get this many customers reunited with this much baggage? We don't, but we're supporting Southwest in any way we can, um, including, you know, wh- what do we need to do? Do we need to move that luggage elsewhere? Do we need to support with the sorting? So we're working on that. 
How has it changed airport operations? You know, are, I imagine restaurants and stores are having to stay open later than they typically are. What is that? What kind of an impact has it had on the airport employees? Absolutely. That's a great question. A lot of staff has have sacrificed their own holiday time. So we could extend our hours with our shops and restaurants um, and then also with our uh, emergency teams who passed out blankets to overnight passengers, passed out snacks and water. Um, so it was it was a team effort that required folks to sacrifice a little of their personal time. You talked about how the airport is working with Southwest to try to ease the pain that customers have been feeling. The CEO of Southwest, Bob Jordan, is apologizing to those who booked flights with Southwest. Do you think Southwest is doing enough to address the concerns that these these flyers have? You know, this is something that we haven't seen before. Um, I think this is a really good lived experience that we're all going to learn from. Um, and be able to experience storms differently. You know, how can we move forward together as, as one big air network? Because as you know, one thing happens in the air, it affects all of our airports and all of our airlines. Yeah. Alex Renteria, the Director of Communications for Denver's International Airport. Thank you for your time this morning. I know you have a lot on your plate right now. So uh, we're very grateful uh, for you joining us to talk about all of this as you have so much going on. Thank you. She has a great attitude dealing with all of that. All right. Well, the challenges are far from over this morning. For people living in Buffalo, New York, the death toll there is higher once again this morning as authorities are checking homes and cars for people stranded in this huge winter storm. We know this morning at least 31 people have died in Erie County as the city of Buffalo tries to dig out from nearly 52 inches of snow and learns the true extent of the loss and the damage. Let's go to Athena Jones, who joins us live from Buffalo again this morning. Athena, very sad morning again as these numbers go higher. Good morning, Poppy. It is a sad morning. We just got a tweet from the mayor of Buffalo, Mayor Byron Brown, saying that there are another seven deaths in the city of Buffalo. Now, we've been talking about the toll in Erie County, and we hope to get an update on the death toll countywide uh, at their next press briefing uh, of, of city and county officials at about 10 a.m. expected here in Buffalo. But I can tell you that at least the temperature is rising. I'm not a weatherman, but this is uh, this is 32 degrees. It's freezing, and it's only supposed to go above freezing in the coming days. That is something that should help uh, somewhat with the cleanup uh, that still continues. We, we can tell you that uh, some city services are coming back. The, the mayor tweeting earlier about several bus lines that are now going to be open, rail lines opening at 11, but there is still a lot of work to do. You can see behind me uh, snow piled up on each side of the street. You probably can't make it out down the block, but there's a man out blowing the snow. We've seen trucks driving by trying to begin clearing that snow. But when we came in yesterday, what we saw, we saw a few things that were remarkable and frightening. Uh, huge piles of snow blocked doors to, to various buildings, whether they were businesses or homes, and also cars buried in feet of snow. And we know that some of the people who have lost their lives in this terrible storm uh, were found in vehicles, trapped in vehicles. So that is going to be something that authorities are going to be out looking for. Uh, uh, they've said the last couple of days have been focused on making sure that they can clear at least one lane of traffic on every single street in the entire city of Buffalo in order to make sure that emergency operations uh, can function. Because among those deaths were people who also suffered from a delay, the emergency services not being able to get to them. That is something the city wants to avoid. And they also want to make clear that make, make sure that uh, stores, grocery stores that have reopened, like Tops and Wegmans, drugstores and the like, can uh, still get uh, get their supplies that are coming in on trucks. So uh, the, the focus now this, today is going to be on 
searching uh, these cars and, and checking uh, on people's homes and, of course, clearing the roads. And part of that is because uh, as we get closer to the end of the week, uh, the temperatures are supposed to get to the 50s. That could cause a lot of snow melt if a lot of the snow hasn't been cleared. And so they're making sure to strategically clear uh, some of the snow from areas uh, that they know have a tough time draining in order to avoid flooding. But the good news is the snow has stopped after a couple of more inches, an inch and a half more yesterday. Uh, now more than four feet of snow has fallen this week uh, from that storm. And, and we'll see uh, how uh, dig out continues. They have so much Bobby? work ahead of them. Athena, thank you to you and your crew for being there. Caitlin. The Supreme Court has extended that Trump-era border policy, leaving thousands of migrants and advocates in Mexico and the United States in a state of uncertainty and confusion. We're going to talk to the lead counsel who represents families that are most impacted by the ruling with his perspective next. This morning, the Supreme Court is leaving in place, at least for now, a controversial Trump era, but used by the Biden administration border policy known as Title 42, uh, while these legal challenges play out. The policy put in place during the early days of the pandemic allows federal officials to expel migrants before they have received an asylum hearing. But the court's ruling made some uncommon allies on this issue. Justice Neil Gorsuch siding with the court's liberals against keeping the rule in place, writing a dissent with Justice Ketanji Brown-Jackson. Here's part of what they write, quote, the current border crisis is not a COVID crisis and courts should not be in the business of perpetuating administrative edicts designed for one emergency only because elected officials have failed to address a different emergency. He goes on to write, we are not a court of law. We are a court of law, not policymakers of last resort. President Biden responding to the ruling, saying his administration's hands are tied. Here's what he said. The court is not going to decide until June, apparently. And in the meantime, we have to enforce it. But I think it's overdue. So let's talk about this with the deputy director of the ACLU Immigrants' Rights Project, Lee Alert. He is lead counsel representing the families' subjects. You're on the other side of the Republican states. We are. Who took this to the high court. The ruling didn't go in your favor, but I think Gorsuch's um, dissent with Justice Jackson is really interesting. Yeah, we, we absolutely agree with what he said. Look, COVID was put in, the COVID policy was put in place as a temporary measure. It's long outlived any public health justification. CDC has said that. And in fact, the states went to the Supreme Court and didn't even argue that this was necessary for COVID, just as a border management tool. And I think Justice Gorsuch was absolutely right. If you want to talk about revising the asylum policies at the border, then we can talk about that. And we are in favor of putting in a fair and efficient system. But you can't continue to use, misuse these public health laws. So what's the next step here? Well, the next step is we'll go to the Supreme Court. We're hopeful that we'll win. But ultimately, the merits of Title 42 will not be there. And so at some point, this needs to end. I mean, I think what people miss are two things. One is that it gives people no asylum hearing whatsoever. You see a lot of the red states say, well, look, you can just apply for asylum legally. Title 42 does not allow you to get asylum hearing, even if you present yourself legally at a port of entry. The other point is that this is not some technical abstract policy. There is real harm going on. Mothers and fathers are being pushed back across the bridge into Mexico, holding their little children's hands directly into the hands of cartels. The federal court of appeal said it's like walking the plank. 
There are thousands of cases, documented cases, of rape, torture, persecution, even death. I mean, this is horrific what's happening, and there's no longer any public health justification. If you want to debate border management policy, let's debate that, but let's not misuse a public health law, as Justice Gorsuch said. Um, well, and he also makes the point that it's an accurate point that Congress hasn't done its job to address this since comprehensive immigration reform, I think 1986, the last big, big, big one. Right. It got through under the Reagan administration. I do want your response though, to the, what the Republican-led states are saying here, 19 of them who have prevailed for now. Right. Um, quote, the greatly increased number of migrants resulting from this termination will necessarily increase states' law enforcement, education, and health care costs. They're saying we can't bear the cost of this. Do you think you, how do you think you prevail then when the court hears this out more fully? Well, I think ultimately what the court will hopefully say is what Justice Gorsuch said. If you want to talk about border management, let's talk about that. If there are policies that deal directly with border management, we'll, we'll address those, address the legality of them, and also from a public policy measure. But you can't misuse a public health law. It was not intended to regulate the border. I also think people are overstating what's happening at the border. If you close the border for so long, of course there's going to be a temporary influx of people, but ultimately it'll even out. And the federal government has more than enough resources to deal with this. But do you think they're prepared for it? If they have the resources, are they... Do they have a plan to actually use it when this is? No yeah, so that, that's a good question. I think they do have a plan, but ultimately I think Title 42 is acting as a crutch. And once it goes, they will then have to surge those resources. What we saw with the Ukrainians, which was great, is them surging resources, processing 100,000 people. We can do this. It's sort of a will where there's a will, there's a way kind of thing. And I think there's no question they can do it. And I think the NGOs and other states around the country are prepared to help. But we can't have a system where there's zero asylum. And, and Lee, your position is clear. I mean, you are obviously not in support of Title 42 right. remaining, which means that the government, that they, people seeking asylum can just get rejected and pushed back exactly. into Mexico. But... What do you make of the Biden administration that initially during the campaign in the early days was all about repealing it, then changed when many more migrants were coming over the border and wanted it and now back? Yeah, I mean, we're happy that the Biden administration was on our side in this battle, but ultimately the Biden administration has not been great on the border. And that's that's troubling. Uh, I, I think. At the end of the day, we have to have some asylum system. Unless you're in favor of no one getting asylum, no matter how much danger they're in, even if the persecution is racial, religious, political, you can't keep Title 42 in place. And the, the other thing I would stress is that there is a system in place to move people out quickly, but it gives people, at least gives people an asylum hearing. So it's called expedited removal. If you don't apply for asylum, you can be gone in a matter mm -hmm. of hours. If you apply for asylum, it's a very truncated hearing, but at least it's some type of hearing. We think it's, oh, it's too short. It's a four-year wait for some right now. There's a historic backlog, as Rosa was reporting, so of there's people no trying question. to get these hearings. Well, we're, we're in favor of having a more efficient system. But yeah. the initial screening is very quick. That can be done in a week. And so if you don't have a credible claim, you're gone. It's only people with credible claims that get put into the larger system. Let's reform that larger system. What, yeah, what should the Biden administration do differently? 
Well, I, I think what we can do is, first of all, put more asylum officers at the border so that it's not this kind of drawn-out procedure. But I think they, can, they need to put more resources into it. I think Congress needs to put more resources in. It's all about enforcement now. But these families, I mean, you hear people saying, well, this is a national security crisis. If you would see these families at the border, and I know CNN has been down there all the time, these families walk over the border and they just sit down with their little children wanting to apply for asylum. They're not bringing drugs. They're not a danger. And so let's move some of the enforcement resources into processing cases. Um, Legal Alert, thank you so much for, for being with us. Thanks for covering this. Thank you. No, of course we will. Up next, newly released transcripts. They reveal explosive testimony from the January 6th committee star witness. You remember her, Cassidy Hutchinson. Also including a White House official, her boss, who was burning documents in his fireplace during a very sensitive time in the final days of the Trump administration. We'll talk to a former colleague of hers who resigned the day of the Capitol attack. That's next. This morning, we're getting new insight into what happened during the final days inside the Trump White House. Former aide Cassidy Hutchinson says that she witnessed her boss, Chief of Staff Mark Meadows, burn documents in his fireplace in his office around a dozen times between December 2020 and mid-January 2021 when Trump actually left office. Hutchinson told the committee throughout the day he would put more logs in the fireplace to keep it burning. And I recall roughly a dozen times where he would throw a few more pieces of paper in with it. In that same time period, Hutchinson said that Meadows instructed White House aides to keep some Oval Office meetings close hold in the period after the election, potentially leaving those meetings off the books, according to one of the transcripts that was released yesterday. So joining us now for perspective on this is the former Deputy White House Press Secretary under President Trump, Sarah Matthews. Sarah, we should note you, know, you resigned after what happened on January 6th. And I just wonder... Are you surprised at all to hear what your former colleague testified about Mark Meadows burning documents in his office? You know, it doesn't surprise me. Mark Meadows was um, consistently one of the biggest enablers of Trump. And um, just hearing from folks that I worked with who were often in the room with him when he was with President Trump, um, he usually didn't push back on Trump. And so it doesn't surprise me to hear that he um, wasn't acting in accordance with the law. What kind of can you remind just viewers what kind of chief of staff Mark Meadows was? You, you said he's a huge enabler of Trump. You know, what was it like working underneath him? Yeah, I think I consistently felt like um, that he didn't um, necessarily look out for the staff and that his biggest concern was just protecting um, his own reputation or um, protecting himself in the eyes of the former president and trying to always make sure that he was appeasing um former President Trump and staying on his good side. And the documents aspect of this is so notable because in the White House, you have to preserve those documents. You can't just throw them away like like you would typically throw away a piece of paper at home or in a regular office. You have to make sure that they're disposed of in a proper way and in accordance with the Presidential Records Act. Correct. Yes. And all of the White House staff were aware um, of this. This is something they tell you on day one and they show you we had um, bags that you would place documents in that um, needed to be burned um, if they were sensitive material. But that was only if they were copies. Um, One of the things with the Presidential Records Act is that if they were the original copy, then that is not something that you can dispose of. And so that's what will be interesting to learn is were those documents that Mark Meadows was burning in his fireplace, original copies, and what was the nature of those documents?
Yeah, and I should know Cassidy Hutchinson testified she didn't know if they were originals or if they were copies. What that sounds like, we haven't heard from Mark Meadows on that. Another revelation, though, from her transcript uh, was about, or from the transcripts that we got yesterday, was also from Judd Deere, your colleague who is a deputy press secretary, who said in the week after the election, he heard there was gossip around the building, meaning the West Wing, that Trump was considering conceding and even strongly considering inviting the president-elect and the incoming first lady to the White House. Had you ever heard that gossip when you were there? I hadn't heard um, that gossip necessarily, but I had heard some gossip in terms of um, behind closed doors in private meetings. Um, President Trump would admit um, to staff that he had lost. You know, he would kind of slip up and acknowledge uh, the incoming administration and things like that. So it seemed like in those um, weeks after the election, he was aware that he had lost. But um, then as the weeks went on, um, he clearly didn't want to leave the White House. And so he started pursuing any theory he could, even if there wasn't evidence to support those theories. And how did that change the attitudes uh, of your colleagues who were working there, who they had privately acknowledged that he lost the election, that y'all were going to be leaving the White House come January? You know, what was it like? How did staff and your fellow colleagues react to, to seeing Trump act in that manner? I think a lot of people are disappointed. Um, you know, it kind of his obsession with trying to overturn the election and not being able to accept the fact he lost started to um, sh- put a shadow on all of the accomplishments he had done over the last four years. And so a lot of the staff was encouraging him to focus on, you know, touting his accomplishments and um, highlighting his legacy in those final weeks of his administration. Um, but obviously, he chose to not do that and chose to um, solely focus on trying to overturn the election. And that was disappointing for a lot of folks, uh, myself included. And so I think um, then on January 6th, when, you know, he failed to act and um, was kind of inciting an insurrection, I um, ultimately chose to resign because I was just disappointed with his behavior after the election day and on January 6th itself. Yeah. And Cassidy Hutchinson also testified about the conversations that happened inside the West Wing with top ranking West Wing officials about QAnon with lawmakers like Marjorie Taylor Greene discussing QAnon supporters with Trump, talking about how they were coming to Washington to support him on January 6th. What had you heard about those conversations, if anything? I hadn't heard anything relating to that, specifically relating to QAnon. I knew that Marjorie Taylor Greene um, was visiting the White House and um, you know, having more close contact with the president um, as she was about to become a congresswoman in that following uh, Congress. But I think that um, it just shows that in those final weeks of his administration, he started to um, listen more closely to people who were feeding him things that he wanted to hear um, and conspiracy theories and stopped listening to the um, better advice and counsel of some people who were trying to tell him that there was no evidence of the election being uh, stolen. Sarah Matthews, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much. Well, doctors in Ukraine are delivering babies moments before a Russian airstrike hits their maternity ward. We'll have live reporting from the ground next. You can see the Vatican there. This comes this morning. We are learning retired Pope Benedict is, quote, very sick 
That's Pope Francis asking for prayers for his predecessor. CNN's Delia Gallagher joins us now from Rome. Delia, what are you hearing about his condition? Well, Caitlin, it was something of a surprise this morning when Pope Francis announced that he was asking for prayers for Pope Benedict, saying he was very sick. Let's take a listen to what he had to say just a few hours ago. I want to ask you all for a special prayer for Pope Emeritus Benedict, who sustains the church in his silence. He is very sick. We ask the Lord to console and sustain him in this witness of love for the church to the very end. So just after that, Caitlin, the Vatican issued a statement saying, yes, in the last few hours, Benedict's health had deteriorated due to advanced age, they say. He's 95 years old and that doctors are monitoring the situation. We know also the Vatican says that Pope Francis went to visit the Pope Emeritus just after making those comments. That is all we have at the moment, except to say that the Vatican would not be making this public were it not serious. So we are standing by for updates. We'll bring that to you as soon as we have them. Yeah, a sign of how serious it is. Delia, keep us updated. Thank you. Well, this morning, Ukrainian officials say relentless Russian shelling in the southern city of Kherson has hit a hospital maternity ward where five women had just given birth and doctors managed to complete a C-section. Let's go to Ben Wiedemann. He joins us live on the ground in Kiev, Ukraine. This is not the first time that a maternity ward has been targeted and hit. What do you know? Yeah, this has happened overnight, and that was just one strike of many on the city of Kherson, which was liberated from Russian forces on the 11th of November. But since then, it has been relentlessly uh, pounded by Russian forces overnight in the Kherson region, 50 separate strikes on the city itself, 23, three people were injured. Now, in addition to that maternity ward in the hospital, uh, there were strikes on a bakery, kindergarten and residential uh, apartment buildings as well. And really, since right before Christmas, on the 24th of December, there was a massive Russian barrage on that city, which killed at least at least 10 people and more than 50 others. And in fact, the bombardment on Kherson over the last 24 hours is actually lower than the average, which by CNN's count is running at about 60 to 70 a day. Poppy? Wow. Ben, we appreciate the reporting. Glad you're on the ground. Thank you. Absolutely. Coming up, a Western New York woman is proving why Buffalo is known as the city of good neighbors, more like great neighbors, <laughs> after she desperately pleaded on Facebook Live to get a man that she saved on the street during a freezing winter storm the medical attention he so desperately needed. She's actually going to join us live next. You do not want to miss this. Joe ready to go. He ready to go. He needs to go because he needs medical attention. He needs medical attention. I've called the National Guard. I have called uh, 911. I've called uh, everybody. They just keep telling me I'm on a list. I don't want to be on no list. I don't care about nothing else. This man is not about to die over here on 111. Y'all need to get this man some help. The woman you see there is Shakira Autry, a Buffalo resident who is now being hailed as a hero. She is a hero. She is. Autry was at home with her boyfriend on Christmas Eve as a deadly winter storm was battering western New York when she heard a cry for help. 
It was 64-year-old Joe White, who goes by Joey and is developmentally disabled and lives in a group home. He found himself caught in the storm outside of Autry's home after his sister believes he tried to walk home from work in blizzard-like conditions. When Autry found him, Joey was in pain, understandably scared, and showing signs of frostbite. She brought him inside, cut off his clothes off of him, and began drying him with a hairdryer to try to warm him up. Luckily, he remembered his sister's phone number, so she was able to call her. But after her 911 calls went unheeded because of the difficulties with the storm, she knew that he needed serious medical attention, and she started recording. When my boyfriend found him, he had a bag. He had this top bag, this bag, on in on his hands. It were frozen to his hands. Okay, I cut it off. After I cut it off, when I when I cut it off, his hands. I turned around and I had to blow dry the ice off of him. After that, neighbors came over to help plow the snow. They wrapped Joey in a blanket. Autry rode with him to the hospital. Thank y'all so much. I'm so happy y'all responded so fast. I'm right here. You okay? I love you too, sweetie. You okay? No, nothing's going to happen. Just breathe. Breathe. Joey remains in ICU this morning. He has fourth-degree frostbite. His sister, who is grateful for Autry's help, says... Yvonne White is going to join us now alongside Shakira Autry. We are so glad both of you are here this morning. And Shakira, I just want to start with you because you are a hero for saving him. And I just want you to recount what it was like to find him and bring someone that is a stranger to you into your home as the storm was underway. It was very, it was very devastating, very devastating, it was heartbreaking to even see someone so helpless and he just needed some help. And you made him pancakes, right? You tell us what it was like. <laughs> yes, he actually woke me up on Christmas morning. I told him the day before Christmas, I said, hey, Joey, looks like if you're going to wake up with me on Christmas, he said, he said to me, okay, are you, can I get a uh, Bruce Lee shirt? And I said, yep, we can. So <laughs> Christmas morning happened, and I heard, hey, hey. I'm like, yeah. He's like, you're going to make me pancakes? I'm like, yeah, I'll make you pancakes. <laughs> The ultimate caregiver. <laughs> Can you tell us, Yvonne, how your brother's doing? How's Joey doing? Um, I spoke to the hospital probably about 35 minutes ago. At this point, he's sleeping. Um, so obviously, I didn't want to wake him up. We'll call him in a little bit. Um, but he's still the same. They're still watching him. Um, fourth degree burns. His voice, I spoke to him yesterday, is very weak. He sounds very sad. But um, guess what he wanted to do, my dear, FaceTime. So so I told him when I go there, I'll check his phone because I just got my new phone a little while ago. And we'll see if we can hook that up so he can talk to everybody and see everybody. He's sad and he's scared. Are you, are you, I know we hate to hear that, but I mean, he's been through so much. And luckily, Shakira is there to help him. But Yvonne, are you scared about what oh. would have happened to your brother had someone like Shakira not been there to help? Petrified. I mean, honestly, honestly, I'm sure he would have perished. Um, I, like I told Joey, we gained a family. I'm, I'm looking yes. at my sister. I'm looking at Trent, who's my brother. And now I'm thrilled because I have three nephews. And that's <laughs> that's how I feel. Because this woman, just, just what she did uh, above and beyond for a stranger. 
what she did is just heartwarming and it makes me cry. I mean, both of us were crying for two days. We, yes, we were. I think we, we in the media and just a lot of people talk about how divided this country is. And it is. Mm -hmm. But let's not forget folks like you and Shakira, what you did. I don't I think we all would want to say I would do the same. I don't know. I don't know if I would. And you just where did that come Mm -hmm. from in you? Paying it forward, how I was raised, my family, you know, always taught me, you know, to have compassion. And that's what I did. It was you know, I just had to jump in, just had to jump in and do what I can do. And I try to as long as, you know, to help can come to me, me and um, me and his sister just, you know, we bonded over the time throughout the, the course of the time of being with me. I made sure to make her at ease, to make him feel comfortable. I sent her multiple pictures. We called, we FaceTime. When the very first time we FaceTime, he did not understand what is he said, Hey, wh- what is that? What are you doing? <laughs> and I'm like, it's FaceTime. He was so surprised. He, he didn't, he couldn't understand it. And Throughout the time, my family, my little cousins, my children, because everybody was stranded. We all FaceTimed them. And I let them know. I said, here, you know, I would say, hey, guys, here's Joey. And he would he was smirk and he would smile. And everybody say, hi, Joey. We just immediately brought him in like family. I would do it 100 more times no matter what the situation was. I'm glad I was able to have power. I'm glad I had food. I'm glad I had heat. I'm just so thankful that I was able to give back and actually pay it forward you know to 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 him to his family to show other people you know we we have to work together regardless of the skin color that we are regardless of the Mm -hmm. age just jump in and just just do it just do it and I'm just so glad that Joey at least know his sister's phone number because when he started saying phone numbers I, I didn't really know if it was real but I called it and when I called it she the first time she didn't answer but when she answered the second time it was like weight lifted off of our shoulders immediately and we began to start working together because outside of that it was just me and my family working together so I I would Mm -hmm. do it again and I'm just so grateful I was able to save his life I'm grateful that Trent was able to pick him up and bring him in here my father you know encouraging this because like I said we were gonna at first we was like well maybe we can put him in a vehicle but he just needed more he needed more than that we we had to help him and I'm so grateful that we did and I just hope other people in other areas that they have a a, a devastating storm or anything if you see something help somebody you know it wasn't even about my life it was truly about him I just mm-hmm. I just wanted to do the right Shakar, do you feel like you've gained another family member in all of this Oh, oh, for sure. For sure. For sure. That's Uncle Joey. <laughs> Uncle Joey. When Joey's going to Joey's going to hold you to that, my dear. He's going to hold you. I, I, to I know that. he's going to sit there. And say, I, I know, you know he these is. are my best friends, Yvonne. <laughs> you got first of all, I just got a text from a friend who's crying. So there's that you're bringing people to oh, tears. Mom. And second of all, you know, there's got to be a reunion of all of you. And oh, I, we want to sure. be there. I, CNN wants to be there. Yes. OK. Yes, we definitely going to have a reunion. What did you say, Yvonne? I I believe something is in the works. We're we're trying to work it out because I tell you, the first thing I'm going to do is give my sister a hug. And I know, I know it's going to be heartfelt. We're very similar. We're very similar. And and that's the sweetest part. Like our favorite movie is Pay It Forward and we love the Disney Channel. (laughs) So, you know, you can't, you don't find people like that that often. 
You don't. You don't find people yeah. like either of you. And and we are. I we just we loved this story. And the minute we saw it, we were so grateful to the local Buffalo outlet that picked it up first. And we are just we're so grateful that you guys came on to share it. And Shakira, we're so grateful for you for your what you did. I mean, it's just it's an amazing show of what people can be like when they're the, their best selves. And so thank you both for being here. We're rooting for rooting thank for you. Joey. We hope that he he recovers and yes, that he's he's back soon. And you guys can all be. And together. we'll see you at the reunion. And if okay. Disney's listening, you, I think y'all deserve a trip to, you know, Disney World <laughs> on them. Thank you. Well, I mean, we thank you. There is a, we are taking cards for Joey at ECMC. Okay. Okay. Keep us posted, Yvonne, on how he's doing, okay? Okay, hon. Thanks. Okay. Bye. Thank you both for being with us. Well, that's a way to end it, right? That was, I'm so glad she found this story, by the way. I love this good story. Job. This is good things come from Twitter sometimes. This is where I saw it. <laughs> There's that. There's that. All right, thank you for joining us this morning. CNN Newsroom starts right after this break. We'll see you tomorrow. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.